0: A new report from the CDC says the gun homicide rate reached its highest level in 25 years during the COVID pandemic. It rose nearly 35% in 2020. Most of the victims were people who are already at higher risk, including people in poverty, black people, and young men. It's Tuesday, the 10th of May. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up also. More than 5,000 Iraqis need medical care after the country was hit by a severe sandstorm. There are questions about whether Baghdad could have prevented the increase in storms.
1: The Iraqi officials could have spent the last 20 years modernizing irrigation, reducing the loss of agricultural land to salinization.
0: Also one of the late artists Andy Warhol's most famous pieces is called Shot Sage Blue Marilyn of actress Marilyn Monroe. Now it's his most expensive. It's 401 news headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden White House is battling political headwinds from historically high inflation. Today, the president sought to reverse growing public frustration over soaring prices, a frustration that Republicans are amplifying in the midterm elections. NPR's Tamara Keith has more on Biden's remarks today.
3: While the job market is strong, Biden acknowledged higher wages don't help if prices continue to rise.
4: I know the families all across America are hurting because of inflation.
3: Biden blamed pandemic-induced supply chain problems and Russia's war in Ukraine. And he said Democrats want to lower costs facing Americans every day, like the price of prescription drugs.
4: I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously and it's my top domestic priority.
3: Biden branded congressional Republicans as ultra-MAGA and accused them of not offering solutions. This is all about the upcoming midterm elections where polls indicate voters give Republicans higher ratings on the economy than Democrats. Tamara Keith,
2: NPR News, the White House. Another round of primary contests is underway, this time in West Virginia and Nebraska. Both are Republican-leaning states and both are expected to further reveal... Just how powerful former president Donald Trump's endorsement is when it comes to unseating GOP incumbents he doesn't like. In one high-profile race in Nebraska, Trump's backing a gubernatorial candidate whom multiple women accuse of sexual misconduct. The candidate, Charles Herbster, denies the allegations. Separately, Trump may be back on Twitter if Elon Musk buys the company. Today, Musk said he'd reverse the ban Twitter imposed on Trump following last year's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Soaring consumer prices loom over British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government. Today, the UK leader told Parliament his Conservative government would make good on promises made in 2019 to lift up financially struggling Britons. The plans for the next year were unveiled in the ceremonial state opening of Parliament. For the first time in nearly 60 years, it was done without Queen Elizabeth II, the 96-year-old's eldest son and heir, Prince Charles, stepped in. The Pentagon says Russian progress in southeastern Ukraine continues to be slow and uneven. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports Ukrainian fighters are holding on amid heavy Russian bombardment.
5: Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says villages are changing hands back and forth in the Donbass region despite continued Russian airstrikes and heavy artillery. Russian missiles also struck the port city of Odessa. Kirby says despite Russian attempts to prevent it, American aid to Ukraine is still flowing freely.
6: And there's been no impact, either as a result of the strikes on Odessa or the strikes anywhere else. Uh, That stuff continues to flow every day.
5: The Pentagon says Russia has expanded much of its stockpile of precision-guided weapons, and production to replace them is being made more difficult by economic sanctions. Quill Lawrence, NPR News.
2: The Dow closes down 84 points, ending the day at 32,160. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Senate leaders today unveiled a nearly $50 billion budget proposal for fiscal year 2023. It includes twice as much aid to cities and towns as the House and governor have proposed. The Senate version would also add more money to the state's rainy day fund. Lawmakers are expected to agree on a budget by July. MBTA is bringing back express train service on the commuter rail between Worcester and Boston. The T put the twice-daily trips on hold in January because of staffing challenges caused by the Omicron surge. The T announced today changes for the spring and summertime. The so-called heart-to-hub trains will return May 23rd also that day, the commuter rail will begin running midday trains from Boston to Foxborough. A Boston judge today has acquitted former celebrity chef Mario Batali of sexual misconduct. Batali was accused of forcibly kissing and groping a woman at a Back Bay restaurant in 2017. He denied the charges and said his accuser had a financial incentive to lie. Batali waived his right to a jury trial, and this afternoon, the judge in the case found him not guilty of the criminal charges. The judge says the prosecution failed to meet the burden of proof. The accuser has a pending civil suit against Batali. And Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights is partnering with a national nonprofit to distribute one million N95 masks. To high-risk communities across the nation, Project N95 vets the masks, and Harvard epidemiologists use COVID vaccination rates and poverty rates to identify priority areas in the distribution. The center's chief executive director, Natalia Lino, says equitable distribution is urgent now that mask mandates have been lifted.
7: In a situation where you're walking into a grocery store
8: or on a bus or in a train, and you yourself need to protect yourself, and everybody else is not wearing a mask that point you really need to be wearing the best quality mask that is available.
0: The collaboration has already sent masks to Fall River and to Boston. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight, dropping to about the lower 40s. Tomorrow, sun shines back again. Highs in the low 60s should be windy once again. Thursday, mostly sunny, a lot warmer. Highs in the mid 70s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our
9: listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment.
10: This is
11: All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Adrienne Florido. Large wildfires continue to break out across southwestern states. New Mexico is getting hit hardest with seven fires raging. The largest just surpassed 200,000 acres burned.
11: The fires have pushed tens of thousands of people out of their homes, and more evacuations are expected. Barney Torres lives in Cleveland, New Mexico, and told Al Jazeera he is worried.
4: There's some bad winds coming up
12: Wednesday night. Really, really strong. So if they don't contain it by Wednesday, we're going to be in real trouble.
10: The winds have been relentless for weeks now. In Las Vegas, New Mexico, NPR's Eric Westervelt reports that even veteran firefighters are saying conditions are extraordinary.
13: Thousands have been evacuated as fire crews try to contain the fire spreading across drought parched pinyon and ponderosa pine forests in what marks another intense and early start to the western fire season. Large parts of the southwest have seen drought for decades. That combined with intense wind called red flag days and warmer temperatures have created nightmarish fire conditions here. Crews have had to battle dangerously strong gusty winds, sometimes 40 to 70 miles per hour for days at a time. Bladen Brightrider is a meteor- urologist on what's known as
14: the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fires. It is pretty extraordinary to have a red flag warning to last for 59 hours is as far as my memory goes back is unprecedented.
13: Brightrider says in all, the fire has seen red flag wind warnings in at least 26 of the 34 days since the fire erupted in April. Usually when fire crews see intense red flag days, the wind and temperatures die down at night and relative humidity comes up. But not on the Calf Canyon fire. The wind just never seems to let up. Veteran Wildland Firefighter Dave Bales is the incident commander.
15: Man, I tell you, that's been a huge challenge for us. And and I've been doing this for uh, just around three and a half decades, and I have not seen that many red flag events in a row. Um, Specifically, this last event we just went through was up to five days straight of a red flag, you know, day and night. For the tired crews on the ground, Bale says, that's meant winds
13: tossing embers and creating new spot fires far beyond their hard fought
15: containment lines in the winds that we were experiencing last couple days yesterday i believe we uh, had reported spotting of up to two miles so you can imagine a two mile spot trying to go on a direct fire edge with a dozer or a hand crew or even a retardant line a two mile spot is going to jump that so that that has been our biggest challenge so far
13: the relentless wind has also been tying the hands of what firefighters here can do Airplanes and helicopters have been grounded most days out of safety concerns, sidelining vital tools in the fire battle. And ground crews have to keep an even closer eye on the blaze as fast wind-driven fire can easily encircle or trap men and women. Clayton Pitts is a lead firefighter on a U.S. Forest Service crew out of San Bernardino, California. He says the increase in wind has meant an increase in risk to firefighters. When you have winds 25, 45, 60 miles an hour it really changes the what
16: tactics you can do on the ground now when you have extreme fire behavior your time wedge changes your decision space changes and you need to be able to look out into the
13: future further so that you can get your guys to safety if things rapidly escalate. One part of the fire was started when an intentional or prescribed burn got out of hand after winds picked up. Officials are investigating whether there were safety lapses in that intentional blaze meant to clear out heavy fuel left by decades of fire suppression. The fire is spreading through rural forested terrain and affecting mostly small villages and towns. On Sunday near the town of Holman, the fire jumped what was considered an important fire line break, Highway 518. That led to evacuation orders for a few more towns. Chris Lopez, the sheriff of San Miguel County, says those who choose not to leave are endangering themselves and first responders. But he understands it isn't an easy decision.
17: It's very difficult for these people as, as some of them, you, it's, their homes are generational. And so when we go in there to do evacuations, you know, you have to really uh, talk to them. And usually I try and do it very systematic, especially with our ready set go process. It helps them to prepare.
13: What's your message to those that want to stick around and stay? Property homes can be replaced,
17: but lives can't.
13: Winds are forecast here to let up a little today and tomorrow, giving firefighters only a small window to try to get a bigger handle on the wildfire. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Las Vegas, New Mexico.
11: French President Emmanuel Macron was elected to a second term at the end of April and sworn in over the weekend. And even though Macron won, the right wing's Marine Le Pen did increase her votes from when the two of them faced off five years ago. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that Le Pen's support is strongest in the parts of France that feel left behind.
18: The Normandy town of Elbeuf is far from the holiday and D-Day beaches that draw thousands of tourists. The city's main draw in the last century were textile factories that earned Elbeuf the title of sheet capital. But those days are long gone. Bonjour. C'est joli, Elbeuf. Oui. Residents Raymond and Stéphane Bleu both voted for Marine Le Pen. The 68-year-old retiree and his 29-year-old son, who receives disability benefits because he's illiterate, both live in subsidized public housing. They say it's harder to get a spot these days because of Ukrainian refugees.
15: Marine Le
19: Pen thinks of the French first. Of course, it's bad for these poor people in the war, but the French need to come first. Our president is more concerned for Europe than for France. And he has enriched the rich and left the poor, like us, on the side of the road.
18: The blows described taking part in the Yellow Vest protests a few years ago. The working poor movement from the heartland dogged Macron for much of his term. Christophe Guilloui is author of Twilight of the Elites. He says France today is divided by geography and the blows belong to what he calls peripheral France.
17: On one side are the large globalized cities and on the other, France of the periphery. And for the last 20 years, job and wealth creation has been concentrated in the cities where most ordinary people don't live. And this creates a huge democratic, and cultural malaise.
18: He says France is no longer split along traditional left-right politics.
17: The candidates who made it to the second round this time and in 2017 were instrumental in ending the left-right era. Neither Macron nor Le Pen believes in this divide, and they're the ones getting the most votes today.
18: Macron boasts creating high-tech jobs. He has brought France's unemployment rate down to 7%, the lowest in a decade. His problem? You don't feel that in this corner of Normandy.
0: Bonjour et bienvenue à la mairie de Tourville-la-Rivière.
18: Neighboring Tourville-la-Rivière has had a communist mayor since 1945. But that didn't stop the town from voting for Le Pen. Resident David Mercier says people believed she would bring back solid factory jobs. The jobs created nowadays are precarious minimum wage positions for young people, he says. There's no future in such work. People are fed up.
20: 30%
18: of Elbeuf's population lives below the poverty level. Kids play soccer in a public housing project that stands in jarring contrast to the town's older buildings and churches. There are also many immigrants, old and new. Jamila Judevois' parents came to France from Algeria. The unemployed 47-year-old is raising her four kids in the same housing project where she grew up. For me, the pain, for me I think it's mieux. Le Pen is better, she says. We voted for her because she does what she says. Macron doesn't keep his promises. Je devoir says Macron pushed job training to gain new skills. I don't want training, she says. I just want a job. Najat Saues <laughs> is shopping in a budget grocery store in Elbeuf. Saouez, who wears a hijab, voted for Macron, but says she doesn't begrudge those who chose Le Pen, even though Le Pen has advocated banning the Muslim veil in public. Not everyone who
21: votes Le Pen is racist, not at all. I know many. People are just tired
18: of trying to get by with less, whether they're French, immigrants, veil wearers. We're all affected. Southwest says a vote for Le Pen is a vote of anger against Macron and in support of a candidate who represents the forgotten France. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, El Beauf, Normandy. A
10: new report says the gun homicide rate went up nearly 35 percent during the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, reaching a level not seen in more than a quarter century. NPR's Nell greenfield voice reports on who was most hard hit.
22: Debra Howery used to work as an emergency room doctor, so she knows the reality of gun violence. And the number of times that
23: I tried to resuscitate someone and was unable to save their life, covered in blood, had to find a clean white coat to comfort a mother,
22: was heartbreaking. Knowing these gun deaths were preventable is part of what drew her to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she's now the acting principal deputy director. And the agency's new analysis of gun homicides found a shocking increase. The year 2020 saw nearly 5,000 more people die than the year before. To Howry, here's what stood out. We're losing too many of our
23: nation's children and young people, you know, specifically Black boys and young Black men.
22: The report says gun homicide rates went up across the country, in rural areas and cities and across all ages. But Howery says it went up the most among people who were already at a higher risk, like people in poverty, young men and black people. When you look at the pandemic, things like job loss, economic
23: stressors, social isolation, These were already hard-hit communities, and so this could have
22: impacted them more. This CDC analysis also looked at deaths from suicide with guns and found this remained mostly unchanged over this period. Mike Anestis is executive director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center at Rutgers University.
16: Someone might look at this and say, well, the firearm suicide rate stayed largely the same and see that as a good thing, and I wouldn't deny it's good. It's certainly better than going up. But that happened in the context of the overall suicide rate going down.
22: He notes that even with the increase in gun homicides, the majority of gun deaths in this country still come from suicide. Nell Greenfield, Boyce, NPR News.
11: You're
0: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up, upheaval in the world of farming. That story is next. Shares in a Cambridge-based software maker fell more than 20% in trading today, following a verdict in a trade secrets case. Today, a jury ordered Pegasystems to pay $2 billion to a rival software company, Appian. The jury found Pegasystems stole trade secrets from Appian. Pegasystems says the verdict was not supported by the facts or the law, and it plans to appeal. Wall Street numbers coming up next.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's summer term high school programs, where motivated students can explore new subjects and earn college credit this summer. Programs range from one to six weeks and are open to students currently in 7th through 11th grade. Apply today. For more information, visit bu.edu slash summer slash high school.
0: It was a mixed showing for Wall Street stocks. The Dow slipped about a quarter of a percent, 85 points. It closed at 32,161. S&P gained a quarter of a percent to end the day at 40.01. The Nasdaq rose a full percent to finish at 11,738. All the details on Marketplace starting at 6.30. It's 4.19.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Dedham Community Theater, celebrating independent film. Now showing The Duke and Petite Maman and reopened every day. Visit dedhamcommunitytheater.com.
0: Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Another lovely day winding up. Sky should stay clear tonight. Lows about 43. Tomorrow, clouds come back around. Windy, right about 60 again. Thursday, highs should reach the 70s. 55 degrees now in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Flerivo.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. The big infrastructure bill that President Biden signed in November offers states $7.5 billion to build and improve charging stations for electric cars. But that might not move the needle much in Wyoming, where distances between towns are vast and the population is low. Taylor Stagner with Wyoming Public Media reports.
24: A rusty blue Ford Bronco pulls into a gas station and tire shop in central Wyoming, one of several Mike Bailey's family has owned since the 60s. Bailey could apply for federal funding to add electric car chargers, but he's not sure he will.
25: Sometimes those technologies work out and sometimes they don't. So, you know, we'll see.
24: The bill is sending Wyoming $25 million to install electric car chargers, but unlike some other states, its Department of Transportation isn't planning to do that work itself. It's leaving it up to private industry to apply for the money and do the work. Wyoming's economy has been based on fossil fuels for more than a century, and many people here would like it to stay that way. And Bailey says the federal grants don't cover the full cost.
25: You can spend a half a million dollars pretty easy on that. So even if they pay for eighty percent of that, that's still a hundred thousand dollars that you've got to show that you could make that return on your investment over time.
24: Adam Davis is a researcher at the University of California, Davis. He says Wyoming is already way behind the rest of the country when it comes to publicly available electric vehicle chargers.
16: Wyoming is probably somewhere on the lines of like one-tenth as far along as California, which is the fastest state in the country, and something like a third to half as far along as the rest of the, country, the sort of national average.
24: A big reason is that Wyoming has the lowest population of any U.S. state with fewer than 600,000 people. Since many rely on the energy industry for their paychecks, people here can be hostile to alternative energy. The Wyoming Department of Transportation says that there are only 500 electric vehicles in the whole state.
16: You need chargers to support electric vehicles. But if you don't have electric vehicles, then the chargers don't make sense. And getting those things balanced is really, really, really tricky.
24: But there's at least one guy in Wyoming who's determined to get more electric cars on the road, Patrick Lawson. He says he's been into electric cars since way before the first Tesla rolled out.
26: When I was really little, like six years old, I put together a little car out of two solar panels and electric motors and made it so that I could uh, make it change directions by putting my hand over it.
24: Lawson, who's Northern Arapaho, works for his tribe's internet company. His side hustle is Wild West EV, a business he started that's installing chargers in central Wyoming. He lives in Riverton and sees progress in electric car adoption.
26: And I've found quite a few people in town actually have got them now over the years, so there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us or so, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it went from 1 to 2 to 4 to 8. And, and if you look at the numbers nationally, the EVs have almost doubled in sales every year for the past 10 years.
24: Lawson started his business in 2016. So far, he's helped businesses set up chargers in five Wyoming towns. He's working on applications for the federal funding to help set up more and expects to start submitting them this summer. For NPR News, I'm Taylor Stagner in Riverton, Wyoming.
10: Pistoia, Italy is a lovely medieval Tuscan town, and if you'd been there last weekend, you could have caught a circus performing Alice in Wonderland. There were a lot of emotions on stage and behind the curtains, because as Adam Rainey found out, the troops' circumstances changed drastically on February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine.
27: Alice goes down the rabbit hole and takes us with her while trapeze artists and acrobats perform gravity-defying acts. The Red Queen and White Queen fight for sartorial dominance with outfits that would look appropriate at a Lady Gaga show. This isn't your typical Alice in Wonderland. It's a vibrant display with bright costumes and incredible aerial acrobatics taking place on a stage illuminated by a high-tech multimedia show. And the troupe Theater Circus Elysium is Ukrainian. Perhaps even more than Alice, its performers are struggling to make sense of a world that has been turned upside down. They had only been in Italy a little more than two weeks when everything changed for them.
28: And uh, when we wake up on 24 of uh, February, we see uh, the war is start. It was shock for us.
27: That's Julia Malezik, an acrobat and gymnast in the troupe.
28: It was so difficult because all our um, heart was with our family, but we must go into stage and smile.
27: Fear for their families back home and uncertainty about what lay ahead for them. After the first few days, their Italian producer Roberto Romaniello realized they had to
29: take action. The problem wasn't how to return, whether by land or plane. The problem was they couldn't go home, and actually, we had to bring their families
27: here. Romaniello got their visas extended and buy-in from venues across the country. The show could go on. That's the sound of children playing dodgeball backstage right before the curtain came up. Ten children in all, along with several other family members, were able to come to Italy. Even a grandmother pets too, six dogs and a cat.
30: If we have a job here, uh, we also can give support to people who stay in Ukraine.
27: That's the troops' executive director, Alexander Sakharov.
30: But if I come to Ukraine, nothing. Because I'm not a warrior, I'm not a soldier, you know. I can do it, but it's not will be to effect.
27: While men in the show struggled with the decision to stay or go, men of military age back home couldn't join their families in Italy. By law, they have to stay in Ukraine. One of those was Yulia Palida's husband. Palida plays Alice.
28: Yeah, you feel guilty. You're fighting with this feeling that you are safe. It's unfair, you know, that you can be safe.
27: The 25-year-old dancer came late to the tour. She spent the first hours of the war in a bunker in Kyiv with her husband. There in the bomb shelter, they applied for visas to go to the United Kingdom. The day she landed in Italy, she heard they both had been issued UK visas. But for now, her husband isn't allowed to join her. She was torn about what to do.
28: I, I tell him, maybe I will come home for, uh, for a week. I don't know, no, no, you cannot, you don't need it. We okay, so you go. Yeah. You go because this, this is the opportunity you're waiting for your... Uh, for your
27: life. <laughs> Back on stage, a battle royale between the Red Queen and the White Queen. The two children who played dodgeball are now watching the final trapeze act from behind the curtain. As the performers take a bow to rapturous applause, they unfurl a Ukrainian flag. The children are on stage two, taking a bow with the troupe. Ring performer Oleksandr Špilový says it's hard to keep it together that moment every night on stage.
6: Applause for us, it's really real, like <laughs> emotion, feeling uh, like we want to cry and, and uh, want to say um, thankful for your support.
27: Support that looks likely to continue for the foreseeable future. The troupe will be back on the road soon, traveling across Italy. If you happen to be in Palermo on June 3rd, the circus will be in town. For NPR News, I'm Adam Rainey in Pistoia, Italy.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Another lovely day coming to a close. Overnight tonight, clear skies down about 43 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine dimmed by some clouds. Highs around 60. Thursday, at least, partly sunny and warming to about 70 degrees. Bruins' first-round playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes is tied at 2-up. That'll change tonight as the teams play Game 5 down in Raleigh. Both teams' uh, wins came on their home ice. Red Sox take on Atlanta to tonight. Look for Garrett Whitlock to pitch for Boston. It's 430.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th semesteroff.com And Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with extended summer hours. Events, book recommendations, and more, portersquarebooks.com
19: It's fire season out west, which means federal firefighters are busy, but they are also struggling.
31: Those are the conversations that we have constantly. It's the repetitive, like, you know, hey, did you hear about this kid living out of his truck because he can't afford rent?
19: I'm Kai Rizdal, low wages, high burnout, high risk. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
32: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. At the White House today, President Biden focused on inflation, a top concern for many Americans.
4: I know the families all across America are hurting because of inflation. I understand what it feels like. I come from a family where, when the pa- when the price of gas or food went up, we felt it. It was a discussion at the kitchen table. I, went, uh, I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously, and it's my top domestic priority.
32: Biden also slammed Republicans, saying if the GOP wins control of both chambers of Congress in the midterms next fall, they will increase taxes on middle-class families while letting large companies and billionaires off the hook. Overturning the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion legal in this country would be unpopular, this according to polls. And Domenico Montanaro reports, Republicans are instead trying to shift the focus to where Democrats stand on restrictions.
31: Democrats are set to take a vote as soon as Wednesday on a national law that would make abortion rights legal nationally. Republicans are hammering Democrats over the bill's banning of many restrictions on abortion, like parental notification, which is popular. The bill would also not allow state abortion bans before viability of a fetus, which is about 23 or 24 weeks. It would allow abortions later than that if, a health provider determines that the life or health of a pregnant person is at stake. Republicans are claiming that shows Democrats want to allow abortions up until birth, but that's misleading because the language is similar to what's already laid out in Roe, allowing for abortion up to viability and afterward for life or health as determined by a doctor. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington.
32: Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory after a choppy trading session. The Dow was down 84 points. The Nasdaq gained 114, the S&P
0: 500 up 9. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. One of the business owners suing Boston Mayor Michelle Wu over the city's outdoor dining fee for North End restaurants calls the fee unjust. That fee is $7,500. Frankie Mendoza and his brothers own Monica's Trattoria and Monica's Mercado. They say by imposing the fee only on North End restaurants, the city has created unfair methods of competition.
12: Uh, I have a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a nine-year-old. My brother has four children. My other brother George has three. They're not only going to hurt my family, sir. They hurt the other 30 people that work for me, and then the other 30 people that work for me across the street.
0: Mendoza says the fee and others for the use of parking spots could cost his business twenty thousand dollars this year. He and the owners of three other North End restaurants are seeking one and a half million dollars in damages. The city has argued the fees are needed to address concerns about trash and traffic in the North End as a result of outdoor dining. Some members of the Massachusetts state legislature are applauding federal authorities for their decision to launch a safety inspection of the MBTA. The Federal Transit Administration says that it's taking on an increased safety oversight role out of concern about the ongoing problems in the T. State Representative Jay Livingstone says the problems like the years of underinvestment in the transit system
4: i'm pleased that the federal government is looking into the T. am disappointed that there are still significant safety issues
0: that require federal oversight several incidents prompted the federal investigation a man was dragged to his death last month by a red line train after he got stuck in a subway car door late last year a red line train derailed and hit a platform at broadway station and an escalator reversed direction at back bay station That sent several people to the hospital. A new study from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center finds teenagers experiencing homelessness are more likely to face mental health and substance use issues compared to their housed counterparts. A survey found teenagers who were homeless were more likely to use drugs and consider or attempt suicide. Children experiencing homelessness were also far more likely to be male, black, or Hispanic and identify as LGBTQ+. Researchers say the study is a call to action for schools and policymakers to address the burdens that homeless adolescents face. The forecast is next. It's 435.
19: WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu.
0: Another beautiful evening ahead. Clear, breezy overnight tonight. Temperatures in the low to mid-40s. And for tomorrow, some clouds around, some sunshine too. Windy, highs just about 60 again. This is WBUR. Support
20: for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from Indeed committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido.
20: And I'm Elsa Chang. Over
11: 5,000 Iraqis needed medical care after the country was hit by a severe sandstorm last week. At least one person was killed. This was the seventh major sandstorm to hit the country in the span of one month. And while sandstorms are not uncommon in this part of the world, their increasing frequency and severity has caused concern among climate experts. Here to unpack all of this with us is Azam Alawash, founder and CEO of the environmental group Nature Iraq. Welcome. Thank you. So, let me ask you, I have never personally experienced a sandstorm. Can you just describe what does a sandstorm of this magnitude look like and feel like?
1: April is the month where the weather starts changing from the uh, winter to summer, and uh, it's always we had the arba'eens or the khamis winds that bring in these incredibly orangey-looking sandstorms that kind of covers everything. Um, When the sandstorm is gone, everything behind it is orange and everything is covered with a thin layer of dust.
11: So to give listeners a real idea of the health consequences that you are already seeing from these severe sandstorms, like what kind of respiratory conditions and other illnesses do these storms cause?
1: As it happens, I am one of the victims of these sandstorms. I actually get asthma attacks when, this, when these sandstorms happen. I have to stay inside. And even if you stay inside, you're not really escaping those small little particles. So uh, difficulty in breathing is uh, going to hit the young as well as the old. Coupled with that, there is increased in temperature. The temperature uh, models are predicted to be increasing. This is not a joke. This is, this is real existential stuff for Iraq.
11: And why are these storms getting more frequent and more intense now in that region?
1: Well, obviously climate change is making uh, weather patterns more extreme, more frequent, but what is also accompanied with it is the fact that Iraq has been losing its uh, Arab land to desertification to salinization. My frustration with Iraq officials, they now talk about climate change as the as the as the reason for all of this Well, I cannot deny that climate change is part of it, but it has become an easy excuse for not acting. In reality, they could have worked with this 20 years, 30 years ago and prevented this this thing from getting more severe.
11: So what should the government in Iraq have been doing the last 10, 20 years in order to have avoided or
1: mitigated these sandstorms? The Iraqi officials could have spent the last 20 years modernizing irrigation, reducing the loss of agricultural land to salinization, reducing the desertification, uh, stopping the pastoral activities or limiting the pastoral activities to certain areas. But it's not been done. And, and the Iraqi officials are used to reacting, not acting proactively.
11: So at this point, can any of the repercussions that we're seeing be reversed so that these sandstorms become less severe?
1: It took 40 years. It's gonna take a lot longer to to recover. What we need to do is modernize irrigation so that we uh, reduce the losses to desertification. We need to increase planting of palm trees and create the the green belts. These are of of course going to take uh, a decade or two to create. Uh, But one thing that I have learned Nature has the ability to heal. We just need to remove mankind's effect from it.
11: Azam Aliwash is founder and CEO of the environmental group Nature Iraq. Thank you very much for joining us today.
10: Thank you for giving me this opportunity. President Biden heads to Japan and South Korea this month for his first Asia trip since taking office. One item on his agenda is how the U.S. and its allies can defend themselves against attempts by rival nations to steal information and disrupt supplies of vital materials. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports, the name of the game is economic security and its signature policy of Japan's current government.
12: In 2020, one of Japan's biggest electronics companies, Mitsubishi Electric, created its own economic security division. One of division head Takashi Ito's tasks is to help the firm manage political risks. For example, Mitsubishi complies with U.S. regulations banning the sale of some semiconductor technology to China. The problem, he says, is that…
17: China introduced a law to sanction companies that obey their own country's laws. Japanese companies were caught between the two contradicting regulations. Mitsubishi
12: Electric, which makes radar for Japan's military, was hacked by suspected Chinese hackers in 2019. Ito says his company must protect its technologies, but getting out of the China market is not an option.
30: Although
17: we may have specific technologies that we cannot share, on the other hand, I think it's nonsense to limit our business with China. We should push
12: for business in other areas. Ito says his company supports Japan's new economic security law now before parliament. The law will allocate government funds to develop new technologies. It'll help secure supply chains for semiconductors and rare minerals. And it'll allow the government to keep patents for some technologies with military applications secret. Akira Amari is a former economic minister and architect of Japan's economic security policies. He says Japan needs a legal system to prevent the theft of its advanced technology.
29: Japan has long been called a spy's paradise. All sorts of economic spies can hide in Japan, as Japan has no system to protect it from espionage.
12: Japan's new law will also try to prevent rivals from sabotaging critical infrastructure. Amari warns that some Chinese-made equipment could put Japan's telecommunications networks at risk.
29: We can't tell if Chinese 5G-based station equipment is a black box or what kind of traps may be installed in it. Chinese companies may deny this, but under China's system, companies can never deny requests from their government.
12: In 2010, Japan learned a lesson when a territorial dispute prompted Beijing to retaliate by economic means.
17: During that fiasco, the Chinese government has decided to stop the export of rare earths to Japan, and that was a huge wake up call.
12: That's Akira Igata, executive director at the Center for Rulemaking Strategies at Tama University in Tokyo. Those rare earths are critical for high tech products Japan makes. But Igata warns that economic security must not be an excuse for protectionism.
17: If we all start engaging in protectionist policies, then that counteract everything that we're trying to do. We become the enemy.
12: Indeed, Tokyo used to consider some of the policies it's adopting now, such as making patents secret, pretty distasteful.
17: These are
23: things the Japanese government has never wished to really do.
12: Sheila Smith, a Japan expert with the Council on Foreign Relations, says Japan's business lobby was initially skeptical about the new law. Their message to Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was this.
23: Don't shut us off from our export markets, our global export markets. So there was a shot across the bow very early on to Prime
22: Minister Kishida about the private sector's concerns.
12: Government reassurances helped to ease those concerns, as did fears about China. The economic security bill smoothly passed the lower house of parliament last month. It's expected to be enacted during the current session of parliament, which ends June 15th. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul.
11: In the early days of the war simply leaving the house was too dangerous in some parts of southern ukraine now some civilians have managed to cross the front lines to escape from russian-held territory hear their stories tomorrow on morning edition and you're listening to all things considered from npr news
10: andy warhol's paintings of marilyn monroe were some of his most iconic work now, one of them, known as Shot Sage Blue, Maryland, has set the record for the most expensive work by an American artist sold at auction. Yesterday, it sold for $195 million at Christie's in New York. To talk about this stunning sale is art critic Blake Gopnik, who wrote about it for The New York Times this morning. Blake, thanks for joining us. Nice to talk to you, Adrian. I think a lot of people would recognize this 1964 silkscreen painting if they saw it, but describe it for us, would you? It's a gorgeous silkscreen
14: painting of Marilyn Monroe, glowing with beautiful colors. I think, as you say, most people would recognize it because it's just about Warhol's most famous painting. It was reproduced on posters all over the place in the 1970s, so people really became familiar with it.
10: And what made this uh, painting so influential?
14: You know, it's, it's a kind of a distillation of everything that Warhol is about. A lot of people talk about the importance of Marilyn as a subject, and I guess she's important, but I think it's, it's the Warholishness of it that really makes it grab people. Uh, weirdly, because it lacks originality. It's Warhol appropriating an image, a really trivial old 1952 image of Marilyn from Hollywood and then giving it a kind of new fine art life. It really stands for everything that Warhol ever did.
10: Well, as I said, this one that sold last night, Shot Sage Blue, Maryland, sold for $195 million, and it reached that price in less than four minutes of bidding. Why did it go for so much money?
14: Well, I guess you could say, why didn't it go for more? There were a lot of people who thought it might go for $400 or even half a billion dollars because there was a Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the Salvatore Mundi, that went for, what was it, $450 million just a few years ago. And a lot of people thought someone's going to want to own the most valuable picture in the world. And if it's only the second most valuable picture, it's less interesting. So there was actually a kind of disappointment in the art world that it only went for $195 million. Because it's a truly great and important Warhol. The Leonardo wasn't that, and it still went for half a billion dollars
10: almost. So this painting brought in less money than uh, it was expected to bring in. But I was looking at some of the other paintings that Christie's sold during this auction yesterday, and some sold for 10, 20 times what they were expected to bring in. What are these eye-popping prices uh, saying about the art market right now?
14: You know, the art market has been insane And the truth is the price tags attached to works of art really have almost nothing to do with their cultural value their art historical value they've really become completely untethered you know if an nft of a digital illustration can go for 69 million dollars it really tells you that that the correlation in price and quality really is is pretty much non-existent
10: these days blake you are the author of an extensive biography of andy warhol And I'm wondering, uh, while he was alive, what did the artist himself uh, think about these Marilyn Monroe paintings? And uh, would he have expected them to become this popular?
14: Well, the funny thing about Andy Warhol is he very rarely talked about his own work. And when he did, he pretended to be a kind of simple-minded naïve, which was absolutely far from the truth. His goal in life was to be the most exciting, important avant-garde artist that existed. And I think he thought he was just that. So I think he'd think that this price and all the attention the Marilyn is getting would be completely appropriate. And I, I happen to agree with him, of course.
10: Blake Gopnik is an art critic, a biographer of Andy Warhol, and a contributor to The New York Times. Thanks for swinging by to talk with us about it.
14: A real pleasure.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, celebrated comic book artist George Perez has died. He was known for his rich and detailed work on the Avengers, Wonder Woman, and others. Drivers in the Seaport District of Boston can expect lane closures for the next two weeks for construction. Starting today, the I-90 eastbound off-ramp to Congress Street has been reduced to one lane. This also affects drivers on I-93. The ramp from 93 north to I-90 eastbound has been trimmed to one lane. Lane. State Department of Transportation says the lanes will reopen on May 22nd. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarti this Friday for a city space con- uh, conversation on the future of artificial intelligence and robots. You can get free tickets at wbur.org slash events. This event is supported by Vertex. It's 449.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Mindscape. Featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello. Live, May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. And A Street Frames, master frame makers and museum quality picture framers with their newest location in the SOA Arts District of Boston's South End. astreetframes.com. For farmers, risk and uncertainty are a big part of the job, but this year they face drought, labor shortages, shipping delays, and rising costs. It's been a lot. U.S.
31: farmers and ranchers currently are facing more threats and challenges all
19: at once than perhaps ever before. So how are they coping on the next Morning Edition from NPR News? tomorrow, starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrienne Florido.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. For decades, Indigenous women in Canada have been incarcerated in federal prisons at much higher rates than the rest of the population. The country's highest court has even called it a crisis and tried to address discrimination in the legal system. But the problem has not been improving. And now there's a court case and proposed legislation aimed at trying to address it again. Emma Jacobs reports. When she
33: was incarcerated, Sherry Pronto used to call a hotline for women who needed help with things inside. Everything from dealing with abuse to finding resources to maintain their mental health. Now, she's out of prison in an apartment in Montreal, and she's answering the calls from other women on that hotline.
8: They're in a desperate situation or having a human rights violation and they don't know what to do. It's, I find that it helps when they know that I'm also a lifer.
33: This is part of her work with the Elizabeth Fry Society, which advocates for women in the justice system. Pronto is on parole after serving 19 years of a life sentence. She was 19 years old when she helped rob a Winnipeg grocery store alongside a man who shot and killed a young employee. While in prison, Pronto, whose background is Cree and Anishinaabe, noticed the number of other Indigenous women held with her.
8: I was moving around, so everywhere I went, it was like... It was just busloads
33: of sisters. Less than 5% of Canadians are Indigenous, but as of the end of April, they were half of women serving sentences in federal prisons. Indigenous women also spend more time in solitary confinement and have a harder time getting parole, says Canada's Correctional Investigator Ivan Zinger.
16: Because of the pandemic, we've seen a, a significant decrease in the prison population, but it seems that Indigenous prisoners have a harder time to be released than non-Indigenous people.
33: Zinger says the numbers have gotten worse for Indigenous men and women, but especially for women. When Pronto was in prison, she started talking to other Indigenous women she met to try to understand why this was. She saw a lot of the same reasons as those cited by experts on the outside — systemic inequities, poverty, and intergenerational trauma she had experienced in her own life. Pronto's parents both died young. She ran away a lot from the homes of other relatives before her conviction.
2: Some of the street gangs, you know,
8: were born from it was the poverty, it was the trauma, it was the alcoholism, the violence, the the consequences of our of our family members coming out of the residential schools with like no help,
33: no treatment, no counseling. Canada's Supreme Court has also cited discrimination in the criminal justice system. Back in a case involving an Indigenous woman in 1999, the court ordered judges to consider discrimination and societal factors in sentencing.
7: But the criminal justice system is a very slow institution to turn around.
33: That's Jonathan Rudin, the program director of Aboriginal Legal Services. He says first... Not enough funding went to implementing changes. Then in 2012, a tough-on-crime conservative government started expanding mandatory minimum sentences for a bunch of different charges.
7: So judges were faced with, on the one hand, this direction from the Supreme Court to do things differently when it comes to Indigenous people. And then at the same time, having fewer tools to
29: do that.
33: But now his group has joined a new legal challenge to those mandatory minimums before Canada's Supreme Court. At the center of the case is the conviction of Cheyenne Sharma, an Indigenous teenager who received a mandatory two-year sentence for a drug offense. Rudin says that restoring judges' discretion would be an important step, even if incremental, to address what he calls mass incarceration of Indigenous people. And there is legislation in Parliament to repeal a number of mandatory minimums. But
23: many say that won't go far enough. So if you keep sticking us and throwing us into the colonial systems, of course, they're not going to work for us because that's not the way that we do things.
33: Beverly Jacobs, a longtime advocate and legal scholar now at the University of Windsor and member of the Mohawk Nation Bear Clan, says change must
23: be transformational. The systems that need to work are indigenous systems, are the laws that we've always had as indigenous people that respect whether it's mental health emotional spiritual physical well-being it's holistic there's so much work to do
33: she says to finally see the numbers of indigenous women in prisons go down for npr news i'm emma jacobs in montreal
10: one of the all-time greats of the comic book world died last week George Perez was known for his rich and detailed work on books like The Avengers, Teen Titans, and Justice League. Perez had pancreatic cancer, he was 67, and PR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation.
29: When a young Gail Simone was first getting into comic books, she lost interest after she realized that the female characters all looked kind of samey. There was a lot of the same body shape, so, you know, what would you say, 36,
22: 22, 36, whatever, you know, very curvy, big-chested.
29: Simone's a big-time comic book writer now, so the story has a happy ending. But growing up, she just saw these women being used as hostages or as props to further the men's storylines. Then Simone came across George Perez's artwork, particularly on the new Teen Titans from the 1980s.
22: It was a revelation to me because we started seeing female characters drawn differently from each other.
29: The alien princess Starfire had this statuesque physique. Raven
22: was becoming thinner and more flat chested and there was just an obvious effort to state that not all women have the same
29: body shape." And these different shapes and sizes reflected a more complicated vision of these characters as people. This was central to Perez's work in his four decades in comics. In teen books like Titans or The Avengers, he crowded the page with characters doing their superheroics with different body languages, more like people than action figures. His work solidified him as a hitmaker, which is how he got the opportunity from DC Comics to do something with one of their characters that had long been dragging in sales, Wonder Woman. Here's Perez in a 2017 interview with Sci-Fi.
5: I was listening to the pitch and seeing that almost every female worker at DC was not particularly happy with the
29: direction they were going to be going. Superman and Batman were getting these big, complicated stories, but not Wonder Woman. So he volunteered to rework the character from the ground up and added more female mentors and villains and friends to Wonder Woman's orbit. Comic book artist and friend Phil Jimenez says Perez's commitment to, let's call it diversity on the page, wasn't political or ideological.
26: George understood that a variety of different types of characters
14: from different backgrounds, but also different body types, sizes, costume types, etc., just made for more interesting storytelling.
29: And you can see those stories Perez was telling in all sorts of movies and TV shows and cartoons today. Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. Dataiku.com, And from Subaru, with a 2022 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182 horsepower engine, Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
0: This is WBUR. Bruins resume their first-round playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes tonight in Raleigh. Whoever wins tonight will take a three games to two lead. First team to win four games will advance to the next round. A B said today they will be without defenseman Hampus Lindholm and Charlie McAvoy. Red Sox start up a quick two-game series against the Braves down in Atlanta tonight. Boston's hoping for a change in fortunes as they have lost their last five games. It's 4:59.
34: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet Required, restrictions apply. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Car Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR
8: FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: As Russia's military gains in Ukraine have slowed down, analysts say the war could become what's called a frozen conflict.
30: Their plan to transform Ukraine into a pro-Russian state failed. They didn't occupy Ukraine. They don't have a pro-Russian government in key.
0: It's Tuesday, May 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, some bioethicists talk about the ethics of genetic testing and the power of knowing one's genetic makeup. Texas Democrats are hoping a potential overturn of Roe versus Wade will help attract voters to the polls, but the party is facing an enthusiasm gap. Hopefully
22: we can affect some change in Texas, which would be amazing. But yeah, I'm just overall burnt out of like getting stepped on.
0: Also, West Virginia community is trying to prevent substance abuse among teenagers by adopting a program used in Iceland. It's 501.
7: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Even as the fighting in Ukraine continues, the White House says it would welcome further talks aimed at reaching a ceasefire, 11 weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki today saying the U.S. backs such an effort.
23: There have been several fits and starts at attempts at ceasefires, even in smaller parts of the country in Ukraine. As you know, we've been supportive of all of those, but it requires the Russians being at the table and being willing to take part in a diplomatic process.
7: And for the most part, that does not appear to be happening. President Biden's Director of Intelligence, Avril Haines, testifying today. Both Ukraine and Russia believe they can make progress on the battlefield. She He says that makes diplomacy less likely in 2020 the nation's gun homicide rate reached its highest level since 1994 as NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce reports it increased by nearly 35 percent over the previous year
22: as the nation grappled with the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 the firearm homicide rate went up to its highest level in more than a quarter century and existing disparities got even worse young people black people and males consistently have the highest gun homicide rates and they experienced the largest increases in 2020. There was also a link with poverty. Deborah Howery is the acting principal deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
23: When you look at the pandemic, things like job loss, economic stressors, social isolation, these were already hard hit communities. And so this could have impacted them more.
22: The rate of gun suicides remained fairly unchanged, as in past years, more people died from suicide with guns than homicide with guns. Nell Greenfield, Boyce, NPR News.
7: Entrepreneur Elon Musk says of his $44 billion deal to acquire social media company Twitter goes through, he will reverse a ban of former President Donald Trump. Speaking virtually at a Future of the Car Summit hosted by the Financial Times, Musk called the decision to ban Trump from the platform, quote, a morally bad decision and foolish The extreme. Gas prices have hit a new national record as NPR's Brittany Cronin reports the milestone comes just ahead of the summer driving season.
20: The national average gas price reached a new peak, $4.37, according to AAA, though not adjusted for inflation. That's up five cents from yesterday, and it surpasses the previous record hit about two months ago. Diesel used to fuel trucks, tractors, trains, and factories also hit a record high, at $5.55 a gallon. The prices of gasoline and diesel are largely determined by the global price of crude oil. Oil prices spiked after Russia invaded Ukraine. Bottlenecks at refineries are also contributing to these huge price spikes.
0: Brittany Cronin, NPR News.
7: On Wall Street, the Dow was down 84 points. The Nasdaq closed up 114 points today. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts has, uh, a state has settled a lawsuit that sought to shutter a courthouse in Springfield. As Adam Frenier reports, the suit raised health and safety concerns at the Roderick Island Courthouse.
31: The plaintiffs, including current and past workers at the facility, sued several state officials. They claim conditions at the building have led to cases of ALS, cancer, and other ailments among employees. Under the deal, the courthouse will remain open, but the state agrees to make many repairs and take other steps. They include extensive work to the ventilation system, further mold remediation, and a days-long deep cleaning. Attorney Jeffrey Morneau co-represented the plaintiffs.
26: Through this result, we got much more than I think you could have ever really gotten at trial. I mean, all of the things that are included in that settlement agreement are not things that were part of this case.
31: A study on building a new courthouse is also included. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam
13: Freinier.
0: In a statement, the trial court called the agreement comprehensive and said it's in the best interests of everyone, judges, staff, attorneys, and the public. U.S. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren and a Democratic congresswoman from Washington state have introduced legislation to overhaul the country's judicial ethics laws would impose a code of conduct on the U.S. Supreme Court. It would also prohibit federal judges from owning individual stock and create rules for when a judge must recuse him or herself from a case. Warren says the bill would help root out corruption and restore public trust in the federal judiciary. A man who was found floating on a raft off the coast of Rhode Island has been arrested and charged with the murder of his mother at sea. Nathan Carmen of Vermont was found in 2016 after his boat sank while the two were on a fishing trip Prosecutors say Carmen killed his mother so he could inherit the family's estate. Her body has never been found. Carmen is due in court tomorrow on the murder charge. He has denied doing anything to make the boat sink. Twenty Worcester police officers are running to Washington, D.C. to honor a fallen officer from the city's police department. Emmanuel Manny Familia died last June when he tried to save a drowning teenager at a pond in Green Hill Park. The officers started their 425-mile journey on foot yesterday. They will end at the National Law Enforcement Memorial. That's where Familia's name is inscribed. In the forecast, the end of a beautiful day. Clear and breezy tonight in the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow's sunshine dimmed by some clouds. Highs around 60 again. Thursday, at least partly sunny, warming to about 70. Could reach into the 70s on Friday and Saturday. 55 degrees now in Boston at 5.07.
34: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrienne Florido.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. Gas prices are again at an all-time high today. And later this week, we could get more bad news about inflation. Today at the White House, President Biden had a message for the American people. He says he feels their
4: pain when it comes to rising prices. I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously and it's my top domestic priority.
11: But the president wasn't just focused on tackling inflation. He was also pushing his latest strategy to take on Republicans. For more on that, NPR's Tamara Keith joins us now from the White House. Hey, Tam. Hi, Elsa. All right. So before we get to strategy against Republicans, let's start with inflation. At this point, how is Biden explaining why inflation keeps persisting?
3: Well, as we heard, he started by saying that he knows people are hurting, that wages are rising, but they aren't keeping up. And he also said that these are unusual times, that inflation is being driven by a -a once-in-a-century pandemic and the supply chain issues it caused and Russia's war with Ukraine. He has has previously described Putin's price hike as affecting oil prices. Well, now he's talking about Putin's price hike on food supplies and prices as well. Uh, Biden talked about how the Fed is working on containing prices by raising interest rates. And he talked about how Democrats have a plan aimed at lowering costs on things that affect people like prescription drug prices. And then he quickly made a turn to draw contrast with Republicans, arguing that while they want to criticize the president for inflation, they don't themselves have a good plan to bring it down. Celinda Lake is a Democratic pollster working with candidates who will be on the ballot in November. I talked to her about this. She says contrast is really important because right now, the majority of voters believe Republicans are better on the economy than
21: Democrats. There are two kinds of elections. There are elections that are about referendums on the incumbent and there are elections that are about a choice. We need to make this election about a choice.
3: Biden and Democrats are not going to be able to fix inflation by November. Uh, And in fact, people are forming their views on the economy right now as they fill up their cars with gas. Uh, And and there really isn't that much the president can do in the short term about inflation. So Biden is trying to change the dynamic here.
11: Right. Okay. so how is the president trying to pull that off?
3: Well, instead of people voting on how they feel about the economy, he wants them to think about how they feel about Republicans. Uh, But let's just say that Every president wants their midterms to be a choice election and not a referendum. And that's a really hard thing to pull off. He has started using this new term ultra MAGA Republicans. And it's sort of a catch all to highlight the most extreme elements, as he would say, of the Republican Party. Everything from election denial to proposals to outlaw abortion or uh, changes to Medicare and Social Security. And Biden said that he knows Democratic voters are frustrated that his party hasn't been able to accomplish everything they promised or even a lot of their major goals. But he argued that the alternative is worse.
4: Congressional Republicans, not all of them, but the mega Republicans are counting on you to be as frustrated by the pace of progress, which they have everything they've done, everything they can to slow down, that you're going to will hand power over to them and enact so they can enact their extreme agenda.
11: Okay, so instead of talking about what Democrats have not been able to get done, Biden's trying to pivot here and focus on mega Republicans potentially taking over
3: Congress? Ultra MAGA. Uh, and MAGA okay. is short for Make America Great Again. That is the slogan that propelled former President Trump into office in 2016. Now, Biden isn't saying the name Trump, uh, but Trump is already out with an ultra MAGA T-shirt that they're selling with a cartoon version of him uh, flying around as a Superman type character. Huh. Uh, Selinda Lake, the pollster I talked to earlier, told me that the idea behind this slogan is to say, Not all Republicans are bad, just the extreme ones. And and in a sense, that is an effort to appeal to independent voters who Biden is struggling with right now. Uh, White House officials say that we will be hearing a lot more of this, but it isn't entirely clear whether this slogan is going to stick or whether it will work to persuade voters.
11: That is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you, Tam. You're welcome.
10: As the Russian and Ukrainian armies battle over the countries east and south, it's worth thinking about where this war is headed and how it might end. Analysts across Europe fear the war could become what's called a frozen conflict, where Russia retains some Ukrainian territory and there is no lasting peace. NPR's Frank Langfett reports from Kyiv.
35: Russia's current offensive in eastern Ukraine is widely seen as a salvage operation. President Vladimir Putin's attempt to dig himself out of a series of disastrous decisions. Oleg Ignatov covers Russia for the International Crisis Group, and until recently was based in Moscow.
30: Their plan to transform Ukraine into a pro-Russian state failed. They didn't occupy Ukraine. They don't have a pro-Russian government in Kyiv.
35: Alexander Flanka, former deputy foreign minister in neighboring Moldova, says the war now seems pretty pointless. To be quite honest, I think for most people
1: outside Russia, The ongoing war does not make any sense politically, militarily, or economically. I think it is only uh, Putin's ambition that keeps driving this war.
35: Ignatov says Putin is focused on a land grab, largely designed to sell the invasion as a success back home.
30: The goal of Russia right now is to control as more territories as it can, and maybe annex these territories in future, because for Russian citizens it will look like a victory.
35: As Russia takes more terrain, it's trying to cement its control over cities, towns and villages. For instance, in the southern port city of Kherson, the military has installed a pro-Russian government, replaced Ukrainian TV channels with Russian ones, and in another city to the east, they even put up a statue of Vladimir Lenin, which had been taken down eight years earlier. They will
6: appoint city authorities and they will
10: likely hold some kind of referenda, either to integrate into the Russian Federation or into proxy states.
35: Simon Schlegel is a senior analyst on Ukraine for the International Crisis Group.
10: So these territories, they would probably not be then willing to negotiate about.
35: In other words, Russia doesn't see these regions as bargaining chips, but intends to keep them, which Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he can't accept. He insists there will be no peace until Russian troops pull back to their pre-invasion positions. Speaking through an interpreter, this is how he put it last week in a talk with Chatham House, the London think tank.
7: First of all, I would like us to understand that I was elected by the
1: people of Ukraine as president of Ukraine, not as president of a mini-Ukraine.
35: Simon Schlegel says no Ukrainian politician could afford to give up land after the military's impressive performance and the suffering of the Ukrainian people.
6: That would definitely lead to a very heavy political upheaval. That would be very dangerous domestically for any Ukrainian government.
35: And analysts here say, why should they? Alexei Haran is a professor of comparative politics at University of Kiev Mohila Academy.
1: Ukraine will be on upward trend, and Russia is on downward trend because Russia made so serious geopolitical mistake. Definitely, we are not going to compromise and follow crazy Putin's ideas about recognition of the annexation of Crimea and the so-called puppet republics.
35: Most wars end at the negotiating table. Early attempts to resolve this conflict have fallen apart and any new talks seemed far off. Putin's continued vilification of the Ukrainians isn't helping. This is how he described them this week in a speech celebrating the Soviet victory in World War II.
8: We are dealing with the Nazis
23: and we had to do something about it.
35: Nick Reynolds researches land warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, a think tank in London. He says Putin's demonization of the Ukrainians leaves him little political room to maneuver.
12: The rhetoric will make it very, very difficult for the Russians to open up negotiations with Ukraine. Having sort of basically said that, you know, Ukrainian independence is completely unacceptable and that they're akin to Nazi Germany, the Russian government is closing off its options. It's closing off what options will be domestically acceptable.
35: Which Oleg Ignatov of the international crisis group says leaves the two countries at an impasse.
30: They don't know how to stop this war right now because both sides still hope that they can win this war. We'll have some kind of solution, for example, a ceasefire, or maybe, maybe a military treaty, but I'm not optimistic about that. I believe that everything depends on what is happening on the ground.
35: Nick Reynolds says Russia could try to freeze the conflict, the whole territory, and enter long drawn-out negotiations. Ukraine could respond with an insurgency.
12: We could see something more like, uh, you know, an elements of Afghanistan in the 1980s. <laughs> perhaps, you know, where Russia literally controls cities but doesn't control the countryside in, areas, in the
5: areas which it's trying to hold, it could become very, very ugly.
35: Colonel Roman Kostenko, who oversees a reconnaissance unit on the southern front out of Mykolaiv, says Ukraine needs a lot more weapons to push Russia back to pre-invasion positions. As we chatted in front of the city's municipal building, which has been split in half by a Russian missile, Kostenko said Ukraine needs more long-range artillery and missiles.
10: If we will have enough weapons and we can prepare, then it might take months. If we understand that our partners will only provide us with the type of weapons that can deter Russia instead of attacking, it could take years. To be able for us to attack, we need way more weapons.
35: Although the Russians have performed poorly on the battlefield so far, Nick Reynolds says it would be a mistake to count them out. That's because, he says... Russia's army still has a lot of combat power and remains very dangerous. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kyiv.
10: We've been tracking tangible and specific ripple effects of the war on other countries of the world. Check out npr.org slash ripple effect.
11: The Russian Orthodox Church is finding new American followers with no ties to Russia at all. Some are drawn by the leadership of Vladimir Putin and their own racial grievances. And those who study extremism say those converts should not be ignored. That's today
0: on the Consider This podcast. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, the ethics of genetic testing. In business news, a Boston startup that focuses on targeted medicines has raised $150 million to develop precision cancer drugs. That nearly triples the amount of money MoMA Therapeutics launched with in 2020. The Brighton-based company hopes to begin testing its drugs it's developing in about two years. MoMA says the company has five drug programs underway. Each targets a different type of cancer. Numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. We're funded
19: by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with a place for me. Celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings. ICABoston.org and... Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com.
0: A mix showing for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow slipped about a quarter of a percent, 85 points. It closed at 32,161. S&P gained a quarter of a percent to end the day at 40.01. Oh, the Nasdaq rose a full percent to finish at 11,738. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Red's Best, networking local fishermen, fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home
0: or for local pickup. More at RedsBest.com. Clear skies tonight around the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine, some clouds around. Highs about 60 degrees again, but turning warmer toward the end of the work week. 55 degrees now in Boston at 520.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed. Committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florevo.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. Yesterday, we told the story of our public radio colleague, Sasha Woodruff, who late last year went through with a complicated decision to completely remove her stomach.
20: You know, once you don't have a stomach, you actually realize that you don't really need
11: one. She had that surgery because a doctor called her in 2019 and said that she had tested positive for a gene mutation that causes a rare, potentially lethal form of stomach cancer. Woodruff hadn't known she was going to be screened for that particular mutation when she first decided to undergo genetic testing. But After several years of investigating it, she's grateful for the information. And as genetic testing becomes cheaper and more accessible, Woodruff's story raises questions about how much information patients should have and how they should receive it. My co-host, Ari Shapiro, spoke to two experts who think a lot about this. Nita Farahany, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, where she focuses on the implications of emerging technologies, and Hank Greeley, professor of law and biosciences at Stanford University, where he focuses on ethical, legal, and social implications of advances in bioscience.
36: Let me first get your reaction to Sasha's story, and especially the fact that she was contacted without knowing she had given consent to be informed about a genetic mutation that she did not even know she was being tested for. What do you make of this?
8: Oh, there's so much. There's so much to make of it, right? I mean, so first, you know, I think it's not probably that unusual in the coming days of what we can expect from genetic testing. And because what we know about genetics is changing all the time, it's not that surprising that there'd be some additional discovery as part of her original sequencing that she didn't anticipate she was being tested for. I think what's surprising is that somebody actually kept up with it and thought to actually contact her. That's the part that I think is the most surprising.
31: Uh, And it's different, I think, when you're in a clinical context. Her family history of cancer is incredible. It's amazingly bad. Uh, And so in her particular case, if I were her, I certainly would have wanted my doctors to be on the lookout for any kind of cancer connection in my genome. And do you have an obligation to go back every five years and recheck the patient's genome to see if there's something new that that should
36: be disclosed? That's gonna be a tough one. This is an instance of a doctor saying, you have this gene, so you need to do that. But I could imagine grayer areas. How do you balance the need to keep people informed and the desire to give them good information with the psychological burden of knowing something that might not have a clear answer or solution? Um,
8: You know, in, in the kind of short term, what you have a duty to disclose is more limited to those things that are actionable, not necessarily things that are far off into the future. Hmm. There's a question of like, should you, and do you, and some people would want to know, I for one would want to know, even if it was iffy. And even if it was equivocal, um, here's where Hank and I probably disagree about. I think,
31: I think people are very bad at making health decisions. I think most people know very little about genetics. They need help in order to make sense of this. And, you know, if it's a health issue, you're peculiarly not likely to be in, a great, in great shape to make a good decision. You're scared, you're nervous.
36: We talked to Sasha about how she weighed the information that she might get cancer against the certainty that her life would change if she had the procedure. Here's what she told us.
20: You know, one of the things I was afraid of is what if in two years they find something where they can actually monitor for this so I won't have to have it, my stomach removed because it's so drastic. I was so afraid of making a mistake.
36: And so what what do you think? Do you think Sasha was right to question, well, maybe in a couple of years, this cancer will be more treatable than it is today or at least diagnosable earlier on?
8: Yeah, I think it's not an obvious and easy choice for anyone. But I think the right answer is that they have the full information available to them to actually decide Um, whether or not they want to take a preventive or precautionary approach. And for her, she made the right decision.
31: And it's all going to depend on both the medical circumstances and the personal circumstances. If there's an 80% chance of getting a cancer that is very, very hard to treat and very likely to kill you, um, that's one thing. If there's a 5% chance instead of a 1% chance
36: of getting a cancer that is relatively
31: treatable, that's a very different kind of situation.
36: There's also... A booming market of genetic tests that are marketed straight to consumer. Uh, How does the ethical analysis of that differ from what we're talking about here that comes through an insurance company with all of the healthcare system attached to it?
8: Well, I think direct-to-consumer genetic testing is an exciting field because it gives people direct access to information about themselves and does so more cheaply and in a more easily accessible way than going through a physician's office. And so, you know, you can get a kit that's sent to you at home, you can spit into a tube and send it off. You can get a, a lot of information back about different predispositions and risk. And I think it promises a way to democratize information and give people direct access to information, but it also potentially increases the likelihood of genetic literacy as people start to seek to understand what that information means. And that I think is exciting, but, you know, but it raises the kind of ethical calculus for many people, such as Hank. I think Hank calls himself a health exceptionalist.
36: Hank, is this the 21st century equivalent of centuries ago believing that only priests should have access to books?
8: Or alternatively,
31: is this the equivalent of saying only licensed physicians should be able to write prescriptions or only licensed surgeons should be able to perform operations? Information can be more powerful and more damaging than a scalpel. If we can reliably predict that many people... Will not be able to use the information well not because they're lacking in intelligence but because they don't have the background or because they're not in a good emotional state to try to evaluate everything then i think requiring that there be resources available to them to help guide them through that decision is every bit as sensible as limiting prescriptions to physicians
36: there's way more data on the genetic makeup of white people in america than people of color is there work being done in the field to make this science more inclusive
8: Yes, there is an effort to try to diversify these populations significantly and to collect data from far more individuals in order to both be able to um, improve the predictive value, but also to see if there are differences by different regions and, you know kind of different genetic inheritance patterns that may have occurred in different areas of the world.
36: So let me ask just taking hosts privilege here. I'm a relatively healthy person without huge warning signs in my family history. I've got good insurance. Should I get my genome sequenced?
8: Do I think you should do it? Yes, I do. If you're curious about your genome, I don't think that you're going to learn anything earth shattering about your likelihood of future diseases. You may find- I hope I don't. (laughs) Well, you probably won't. I mean, family history is in general, pretty informative, you know, one- Thing that I caution some people about is neither your employer nor your health insurance can make choices about you or discriminate or change those insurance um, decisions or your employment decisions based on genetic information. But Uh, That doesn't mean, for example, that life insurance couldn't make those decisions based on genetic
36: information. Get the life insurance first, then get it sequenced.
8: Yeah. I mean, really, like get your life insurance first and and then go ahead and do it if you're interested in doing so. But uh, I do think it can be valuable to make sure you have all of your ducks in a row before you undertake genetic testing.
36: Hank, what do you think? Should I get my genome sequenced? Yes, I would do it.
31: But for any medical implications, I'd only do it if I knew I had good genetic counseling.
36: Professor Hank Greeley of Stanford and Nita Farahani of Duke, thank you both for being with us today. You're welcome.
8: Thanks for having me.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Another beautiful evening ahead, followed by a clear, breezy night tonight, down around the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, a blend of both sunshine and clouds. Highs about 60. Then milder weather moves in. Thursday could reach 70 degrees, a little bit higher on Friday. If you're feeling especially sneezy and weepy, blame the trees. Tree pollen is at a very high level right about now. 55 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530.
34: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, performed by Boston Ballet School and Boston Ballet II with New England Conservatory Prep School, May 11th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
37: Americans really eat a weird set of foods.
2: And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference.
4: What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint
37: by 48 percent.
2: WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table, whether you're omnivore, vegan or somewhere in between. To sign up, go to WBUR.org slash cooked.
32: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine's military says Russian forces pummeled the vital port of Odessa, firing seven missiles and hitting a shopping center and a warehouse in the country's largest port, killing one person and wounding several others. Ukraine says it's an effort to disrupt supply lines and weapons shipments critical to Kiev's defense, but Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says it's not working.
6: There has been no impact uh, to that at least none that I'm tracking or that we're tracking, no impact to the flow of, of, uh, and shipment of material into Ukraine, either as a result of the strikes on Odessa or the strikes anywhere else. Uh, that stuff continues to flow every day.
32: Russia's war on Ukraine is now in its 11th week. In New Mexico, winds have died down enough to allow aircraft to rejoin the effort against several major wildfires. Kevin Merchart from member station KSFR reports the largest blaze near Las Vegas in northern New Mexico has now burned more than 200,000 acres and is 39% contained.
7: While the winds have subsided, they're still strong enough to keep the Hermit's peak Calf Canyon fire growing steadily. As the fires burn, all of New Mexico is experiencing extremely dangerous potential fire conditions. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is asking state residents to help by getting fuel like dry grass and trimmings off their yards.
18: Be prepared, think about it, be ready,
3: be aware of your surroundings, we've been saying that. I really appreciate echoing that information. What we don't want is panic.
7: Along with the winds and high temperatures, the possibility of dry lightning is also in the forecast. Luhan Grisham says it may take decades to repair all the damage done by the wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Merchart in Santa Fe.
32: Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was down 84 points. The Nasdaq gained 114. The S&P
0: 500 was up 9. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Transit Administration says it will conduct a safety inspection of the MBTA. The agency says it's extremely concerned with ongoing safety issues after a series of incidents on the T, some of them lethal. WBR's Daryl C. Murphy has more.
29: Recently, a man was dragged to his death after being caught in the door of a red Line train car last month. The Federal Transit Administration says it will review the T's transit operations and maintenance programs. MDTA General Manager Steve Poptech says the agency has made investments to make the system safer and is open to the administration's feedback.
16: We can't rule out everything, but we are doing a tremendous amount of work. We're making a massive investment in modernizing the system and making it as safe as it possibly can be.
29: Poptech says the inspection is set to begin this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy.
0: State Senate leaders today unveiled a nearly $50 billion budget proposal for fiscal year 2023. It includes twice as much in aid to cities and towns as the House and the governor proposed. The Senate version also adds more money to the state's Rainy Day Fund. Lawmakers are expected to agree on a budget by July. Today, a Boston judge has acquitted former celebrity chef Mario Batali of sexual misconduct. Batali was accused of forcibly kissing and groping a woman at a Back Bay restaurant in 2017. He denied the charges and said that the accuser had a financial incentive to lie. The judge in the case said prosecutors failed to meet the burden of proof. Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights is partnering with a national nonprofit to distribute 1 million N95 masks to high-risk communities across the country. The nonprofit Project N95 vets the masks, and Harvard epidemiologists use COVID vaccination rates and poverty rates to identify priority areas for distribution. Harvard's Natalia Lino says Equitable distribution is urgent now that mask mandates have been lifted.
7: In a situation where you're walking into a grocery
8: store or on a bus or in a train and you yourself need to protect yourself and everybody else is not wearing a mask, at that point you really need to be wearing the best quality mask that is available.
0: The collaboration has already sent masks to Fall River and to Boston. The forecast is next.
34: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. Should stay clear and breezy
0: tonight in the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine dimmed by a few clouds around. Highs again, about 60 degrees. Bruins' first-round playoff series with the Carolina and Hurricanes is tied up at two games each. That'll change tonight as the teams play Game 5 down in Raleigh. And Sox start up a quick two-game series with the Braves down in Atlanta tonight. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this
20: station. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Adrienne Florido. The Biden administration is gradually reopening the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine and hoping the Senate will move swiftly to approve a new ambassador. The nominee, Bridget Brink, was on Capitol Hill for her confirmation hearing this afternoon.
34: If confirmed, I pledge to work with Congress to help Ukraine succeed on the battlefield and at the negotiating table. We will ensure that Russia's effort to dominate Ukraine is a strategic failure.
10: NPR's Michelle Kellerman was following the hearing. Hi Michelle.
34: Hi there Adrian.
10: Tell us a little about a little about who Bridget Brink is and why the Biden administration tapped her for this job.
21: Well, she's a safe bet for the Biden administration. Uh, Bridget Brink is a 25-year veteran of the Foreign Service, originally from Michigan and a Russian speaker. She's really spent much of her career working on Europe and Eurasia, both here in Washington as well as in some former Soviet republics like Uzbekistan and Georgia. Uh, Most recently, Brink has been serving as ambassador to Slovakia. She was nominated for that job in the Trump administration. So she really has bipartisan support, a lot of experience. She's a professional diplomat, as is, by the way, her husband. He's a foreign service officer with the U.S. Agency for International Development.
10: (laughs) Well, if uh, Brink is confirmed, she'd be the first Senate-approved ambassador to Ukraine since President Trump recalled uh, Marie uh, Yovanovitch in 2019. Why has it taken this long?
21: Yeah, it's a good question and one that Republicans and Democrats have been asking. Um, The Biden administration has been slow to fill diplomatic posts. The Senate has also been slow to confirm them, Uh, but the pace is starting to pick up now. Uh, Brink's name, by the way, was floated well before the war began. But it wasn't until Secretary of State Antony Blinken made that trip to Kiev late last month that he informed President Volodymyr Zelensky of the choice. And that's when the White House uh, made it official. At the time, Blinken also promised Zelensky that the U.S. is going to move the embassy back to Ukraine. You know, the U.S. withdrew diplomats before Russia invaded.
10: Uh, While a lot of other countries kept their embassies open, right? Uh, um, Some have already moved back. Is the U.S. behind the curve here?
21: The ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, Jim Risch, said the U.S. should not be last to the party. Um, Ambassador Brink points out that the deputy chief of mission is there now in Kiev and reported back that it was jarring just how close the Russians came to the. Ukrainian capital, Brink says she saw some photos of what she called superficial damage outside the embassy, and she promised to work with security officials to move back, but to do it
34: safely. Take a listen. I don't know exactly how fast we will be able to do this process, uh, but I know we are trying uh, to do it as fast as possible, and it is certainly my hope and plan, if confirmed, to be able to start my mission in Kyiv.
10: So she sounded hopeful, but didn't sound like she was making any promises either.
34: Right. I mean, the State Department has been much more
21: risk averse in recent years, particularly in the wake of the 2012 Benghazi attack that killed four Americans, including the U.S. ambassador to Libya. But many senators said... In the case of Ukraine, uh, a U.S. diplomatic presence is key. Ukraine is getting a lot of support, billions of dollars in weapons and aid. And lawmakers want an ambassador there on the ground, one that will consult with them. Uh, Brink is promising
10: to do that. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you.
21: Thank you.
11: If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade this year, will that mobilize voters this fall? Well, NPR's Ashley Lopez reports that when she spoke with Democratic voters in Texas, many say this issue is not enough to cure their current disappointment with the party.
38: It's a blistering hot Saturday afternoon in Austin, and Eric Caraggio is knocking on doors for Democratic nominee Beto O'Rourke's gubernatorial campaign. He says he decided to help out just a few days ago when he saw that the U.S. Supreme Court is potentially poised to strike down Roe v. Wade. Caraggio says until he saw that, he wasn't all that inspired to pitch in.
26: I was just like, eh, I'll get to it eventually. And then like this happened. And I was like, all right, now's, now's the time. And so kind of went and, and signed up immediately.
38: Texas is among about a dozen states with a trigger ban in effect. That means 30 days after the court issues a ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, abortion at any stage in a pregnancy will be illegal here. Caraggio says he's really concerned. Uh, it's,
26: it's just really upsetting. you know, It's been standard for, for 50 years now, and it's, I can't believe this is happening in, in America.
38: Caraggio is among thousands of new volunteers that the Better O'Rourke campaign says it has gained in the wake of that leaked opinion. O'Rourke says he thinks all of this could help his campaign by shifting focus to a winning issue for Democrats. He says even in Texas, only a small percentage of voters support an all-out ban on abortion. According to a recent UT Austin poll, only 15 percent of voters in the state would like to see the procedure completely banned.
15: And this issue, I guarantee, is going to bring people out. And when we meet them where they are, by showing up at their door and knocking on it, and in our own words, from our own heart, describing just how important this election is for all of us, we're going to see a record turnout.
38: But when Eric Caraggio actually started knocking on doors this weekend, it was hard to find voters who were inspired to vote for Democrats because of the draft opinion. One of the doors he knocked on belonged to Hillary McLaughlin. She lives in South Austin. She's 54 years old and cares about women's rights and LGBTQ issues. She also has a
26: dog. Hi, Hillary. Yeah. Hi, I'm with the Beto campaign and want to know how you're voting this election.
22: I honestly don't know at this point because I'm so mad at the Democratic Party. So... Um, I mean, I I hope I'm going to be voting
38: Democratic, but I mean, I obviously would like Beto to win. But McLaughlin says she feels like she was, quote, bamboozled by Democrats. She says the party holds majorities in Congress and yet rights like access to abortion hang in the balance at the conservative Supreme Court without a remedy from the Democrats. Yeah, because this should have been taken care of. I mean,
22: hopefully we can affect some change in Texas, which would be amazing.
38: But, yeah, I'm just overall burnt out of, like, getting stepped on. In general, Democrats are facing a pretty significant enthusiasm gap in Texas, says Jim Henson with the Texas Politics Project at UT Austin.
15: All things being equal, you have a lot more enthusiasm for Republicans than you do among Democrats, who, of course, are pretty beleaguered in Texas.
38: Henson says a lot of this could change depending on what actually happens to Roe v. Wade, though. He says if abortion is completely banned in Texas, polling shows it could be enough to engage some Democrats and independent voters who otherwise weren't too enthusiastic about voting for Democratic candidates this year.
15: There are some possible advantages for Democrats you know, looming here, but we don't know still exactly how this is going to unfold.
38: As things stand right now, Eric Caraggio says it's hard to see how this will all turn out—a wave of Democrats in the upcoming election.
26: And so, unfortunately, no, I don't think a lot of people will come out for this. Um, I'm, I'm more engaged, but I went and asked all my friends, and kind of none of them volunteered.
38: But he too says that could all change if Roe v. Wade is actually struck down. Caraggio says once abortions become completely inaccessible in parts of the country. He thinks people might actually get angry enough to vote. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Austin.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Iceland went from having some of the worst teen drinking and smoking rates to some of the best. As June Leffler with West Virginia Public Broadcasting reports, the town of Fayetteville is trying to replicate those results.
39: Fayetteville, West Virginia is known for its outdoor recreation. At a county park, hundreds of kids are trying out skateboarding, banjo picking, and water sports as part of Project Adventure. 11-year-old Adriana Ibarra loves the fishing.
18: One thing it really helps is like patience. I figured out that whenever you fish, you get a lot more patient and it's very nice and chill. And when you get the fish on the line, there's always this really big thrill. It's awesome.
39: What Adriana has gotten from fishing is exactly what organizers in Fayetteville are hoping for. Fishing teaches Adriana emotional lessons and gives her a natural high. It's also a time she gets to spend with her mom and papa. Researchers say such activities made a big difference in Iceland, where the percentage of teens who got drunk at least once a month dropped from 45% to just 5%. Katie Johnson of the Fayetteville
22: Health Department believes the same thing can happen here. And so many people, if they can find their passion and follow it with their heart, They're too busy and and just too
39: focused to want to experiment with risky things. Kids in Fayetteville have been regularly surveyed about their substance use and related risk factors. Locals like Johnson and researchers at West Virginia University found three quarters of kids were not part of organized clubs or sports. Changing that could delay when kids start smoking or drinking.
34: So the later we can delay
23: the initiation, even by one or two years, the less likely that person is to become
33: addicted if they should try drugs later in life, and the more likely they are to graduate from high school.
39: In theory, substance use prevention could save money and a lot of heartache, but it's gotten a bad rap. Education campaigns like Just Say No and the D.A.R.E. program didn't work.
16: If that would work, we wouldn't have the obesity crisis. We
1: wouldn't have the opioid crisis.
39: Alfgur Christensen is a researcher at WVU studying the Fayetteville pilot program. He's also Icelandic and was involved in the model from its near inception. Christensen says Icelandic parents, schools, and policymakers shook up the world kids lived in. It wasn't just one D.A.R.E. class a week.
16: The work isn't about drugs. It's about healthy life and
12: healthy communities.
39: It took some heavy lifting. Most notably, Iceland set a nationwide curfew for teens that's still in effect today. Christensen says the curfew isn't a requirement of the model. It's just one way the Icelandic public sought to fix the problem. The model says communities, not experts, should find policies and interventions that folks can get behind.
30: If parents or
31: caregivers are able to come together and and engage with one another and see, well, we're all in the same boat. Everybody is just wanting the best for their kids. We are much
16: more likely to see positive outcomes.
39: Christensen says the change won't be easy or quick. We need to
16: change their environment and that takes time and it absolutely has to include a lot of local buy-in
12: and local involvement.
39: The Icelandic model changed teens' behaviors abroad and it could work in Fayetteville but the adults in town are going to have to commit to making big changes. For NPR News, I'm June Leffler in Fayetteville, West
18: Virginia.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how Brooke Hayward's marriage to Dennis Hopper helped ignite the explosion of art in the 1960s. In sports, the Bruins resume their first-round playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes tonight in Raleigh. Whoever wins tonight will take a three games to two lead, and the first team to win four games will advance to the next round. The Bs say they will be without defenseman Hampus Lindholm and Charlie McAvoy tonight. The puck drops at 7. It'll be a 7.20 start time in Atlanta tonight as the Red Sox and Braves begin a two-game series. Garrett Whitlock pitches for Boston against Kyle Wright. This is WBUR. Clear skies again tonight in the low 40s, then tomorrow sunshine and clouds both. High temperatures just about 60. It's 549.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. This is really the
14: clearest indication of how Putin has distorted this most important of Russian holidays. This used to be about the idea that Russians would
25: never again
27: allow this kind of war to happen. Now it has become, to quote a popular bumper sticker in Russia, we can do it again.
25: I'm
11: Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8
10: on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. For many who lived through the cultural revolution of the 1960s, It was magical and surreal. Writer Mark Rozo wanted to explore one intersection of the cultural shifts, how new waves in contemporary art, pop music, and Hollywood films evolved. Many people suggested the person he should speak with was actress and writer Brooke Hayward. Her eight-year marriage to actor and photographer Dennis Hopper during the 1960s was a creative epicenter for some of the defining art, music, and films of the decade. Roseau met with Hayward frequently at a little tavern around the corner from her house in Connecticut. They talked about her past over BLTs and
34: iced teas.
37: It took a while to get her to come around to the idea that what we were talking about trying to do was a story that was really a cultural history and was a celebration of her role in all of this in 60s LA. And that these crazy old stories of throwing a huge party for Warhol, going to the Sunset Strip to see the birds, Jane Fonda's crazy 4th of July party in Malibu, that these were events that actually had resonance still and illuminate an era that we're all still making sense of.
11: In his book, Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, Rozo collected these memories of the unlikely relationship between Hayward and Hopper, and he traced the way they redefined what we think of as art, both then and now.
37: Dennis and Brooke meet each other in the spring of 1961 when they were both cast in this bomb of a Broadway production called Mandingo, and Brooke immediately loathes Dennis Hopper on sight, thinks he's too cool for school, but of course, this being a classic case of opposites, attract Brooke falls in love with him.
25: I couldn't sleep at all night
37: Very quickly, an electric romance blossoms between them. They run off to L.A. together, and off they go. They were different. Their tastes were unusual. There were only two people who worked in Hollywood who would regularly show up for um, Ferris Gallery openings and for these Monday night art walks that they had on La Cienega Boulevard, and they were Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper. Brooke and Dennis bought these early works by Warhol and and. Lichtenstein, and they put them into this house, 1712 North Crescent Heights up in the Hollywood Hills, where you literally had no idea who was going to show up night to night. It could be Jane and Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, maybe even Joan Didion, or Tina Turner, or Miles Davis. These people show up, they see the art in this very intimate setting, and so in this very intimate way, this art begins to be exposed to more and more people. If Dennis was kind of taking the lead on the art, as much as Brooke had to sign off on every piece they bought, and often these pieces were bought care of her checkbook, Brooke had this larger vision of what this place could be. And she was the one rolling up her sleeves, throwing on the paint, putting on the tiles, and really turning it into something memorable. There were So many people sticking their necks out to buy this kind of art that was lampooned by newspaper art critics. It's incredible to think that they were able to offer early and decisive support to so many artists whose work for decades now has lined the walls of museums and galleries all over the world and the pages of art history textbooks. And then, on the Sunset Strip, you get that youthquake scene rolling with the birds. The spring of 1965 took the stage at Ciro's, a moribund nightclub, and suddenly it was dance, dance, dance in Hollywood. Everybody came to those shows, from the Ferris artists to the young actors like Dennis and Brooke and their friends, such as Peter Fonda, and night after night, Ciro's would be a gathering place for this odd jumble of people living in Los Angeles who might not otherwise have encountered each other. I'm ready to go anywhere. I'm ready for
24: thing.
37: Dennis was something of a holy fool for art. And being that was not always easy in Hollywood in the 60s, when that industry was still very much about Dr. Doolittle and The Sound of Music. And Dennis had dreamed for a long time of bringing art into filmmaking and was struggling to figure out how he could make that happen, being a guy who didn't always have the best reputation for being the most reliable character. In 65, 66, he was developing a project called The Last Movie, and Brooke was very excited about this. She thought the treatment and the script were brilliant, but it hit a wall. It didn't get made, and Brooks said, you know, if he had been able to get that movie made, then he wouldn't have fallen into the abyss. His career frustrations mounted. He began to become more self-destructive, more violent in the relationship. But in the meantime, this other idea comes out of the blue from his good friend and would-be collaborator, Peter Fonda. When Easy Rider comes along, he feels like he can take the genre movie and feed into it all these things he's learned as a patron and supporter of pop art and a fan of rock and roll and bring this new point of view to filmmaking and make a movie about the moment. You're not scary, you they scared of what you represent to them. And uh, all we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut.
5: Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about.
37: The movie propelled the new Hollywood into the 70s, the decade of Scorsese and Coppola and Altman and Spielberg. Getting to that point was not easy. His relationship with Peter Fonda frayed, the production was chaotic, and then the biggest upshot for him personally was that his relationship and marriage with Brooke Hayward blew up. Brooke looked back on that time with Dennis in the 60s as being the most wonderful and awful years of her life. When she did see the screening of Easy Rider, she thought it was the best acting that Dennis had ever done in his life. And she said she knew it would be good and she knew he would be good because even though their relationship was over, she knew how talented he was and she was glad for him.
11: Mark Roseau on Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s L.A. In his new book, Everybody Thought We Were Crazy.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores, with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at
0: mathnasium.com. Should stay clear and breezy tonight in the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine, some clouds around, highs about 60. Thursday, at least partly sunny, warming to about 70, could reach into the 70s on Friday. Tonight, the Bruins and Carolina Hurricanes continue their first-round playoff series with Game 5 in Carolina. The uh, teams are split with two wins each in the best-of-seven series. Bees will be again without defenseman Charlie McAvoy and Hampus Lindholm. And Red Sox start up a quick two-game series against the Braves tonight down in Atlanta. Garrett Whitlock will be on the mound against Kyle Wright. This is WBUR 55 degrees at 559.
16: I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Death by gunfire reached the highest level ever recorded in the U.S. during the pandemic. A CDC report says the gun homicide rate rose 35 percent in 2020. So those at high at risk included people in poverty and black men. It's Tuesday, May 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also head states are being offered billions of dollars to add more charging stations for electric vehicles. But for states like Wyoming with few electric vehicles, it might not matter.
16: You need chargers to support electric vehicles. But if you don't have electric vehicles, then the chargers don't make sense.
0: Getting America's charging station network to grow coming up. Decades-long drought and unrelenting winds are making it tough for firefighters to contain the devastating wildfires burning in New Mexico. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's six oh one.
7: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is trying to draw a contrast between himself and congressional Republicans when it comes to inflation. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden delivered a White House speech as gas prices hit record highs.
3: While the job market is strong, Biden acknowledged higher wages don't help if prices continue to rise.
4: I know the families all across America are hurting because of inflation.
3: Biden blamed pandemic-induced supply chain problems and Russia's war in Ukraine. And he said Democrats want to lower costs facing Americans every day, like the price of prescription drugs.
4: I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously and it's my top domestic priority.
3: Biden branded congressional Republicans as ultra MAGA and accused them of not offering solutions. This is all about the upcoming midterm elections, where polls indicate voters give Republicans higher ratings on the economy than Democrats. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House.
7: Senate banking committee hearings don't generally result in fireworks, but something like that happened today during an appearance by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The hearing taking an unexpected turn when one senator questioned her about the possible impact of an abortion ban on the U.S. economy. Yellen responded, eliminating access to abortion, quote, could have very damaging effects on the economy, would set women back decades. That drew harsh reaction from Republican Senator Tim Scott, who said framing abortion as a matter of labor force participation rate feels, quote, callous. The Pentagon says Russian progress in southeastern Ukraine continues to too slow and is uneven. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports Ukrainian fighters are holding on amid heavy Russian bombardment.
5: Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says villages are changing hands back and forth in the Donbass region despite continued Russian airstrikes and heavy artillery. Russian missiles also struck the port city of Odessa. Kirby says despite Russian attempts to prevent it, American aid to Ukraine is still flowing freely.
6: And there's been n- no impact either as a result of the strikes on Odessa or the strikes anywhere else. Uh, That stuff continues to flow every day.
5: The Pentagon says Russia has expanded much of its stockpile of precision-guided weapons, and production to replace them is being made more difficult by economic sanctions. Quill Lawrence, NPR News.
7: Used car retailer Carvana has announced plans to lay off 2,500 workers, about 12 percent of its workforce. The company says the layoffs come as it seeks to better align its operations and return to profitability. Best known for its large automated car vending machines, the company's seen its stock price plunge. Carvana has missed earnings expectations for the past three quarters with expenses soaring and demand for used cars plunging due to high prices. The company at the end of last year had about 21,000 full-time employees. A mixed close on Wall Street today, the Dow down 84 points, the Nasdaq was up 114 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. One of the business owners suing Boston Mayor Michelle Wu over the city's outdoor dining fee for North End Restaurants calls the fee unjust. That fee is $7,500. Frankie Mendoza and his brother uh, own Monica's Trattoria and Monica's Mercado. They say by imposing the fee only on North End Restaurants, the city has created unfair methods of competition.
10: I have a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old. My brother has four children, My other brother, George, has
12: three. They're not only going to hurt my family, sir, they're hurting the other 30 people that work for me, and then the other 30 people that work for me across the street.
0: Mendoza says this fee and others for use of parking spots could cost his business $20,000 this year. He and the owners of three other North End restaurants are seeking $1.5 million in damages. The city has argued the fees are needed to address trash and traffic issues in the North End that result from outdoor dining. Some members of the Massachusetts state legislature are applauding federal authorities for their decision to launch a safety inspection of the MBTA. The Federal Transit Administration says it's taking an in increased safety. Oversight role because of ongoing problems at the T. State Representative Jay Livingstone says the problems reflect years of underinvestment in the transit
4: system. I'm pleased that the federal government is looking into the T. I'm disappointed that there are still significant safety issues. That require federal oversight
0: several incidents prompted the federal action a man was dragged to his death last month by a red line train after he got stuck in a subway car door late last year a red line train derailed and hit a platform at broadway station and an escalator reverse direction at Back Bay Station that sent several people to the hospital. The MBTA is bringing back express train service on the commuter rail between Worcester and Boston. The T put the twice-daily trips on hold in January because of staffing challenges caused by the Omicron surge. The T announced today several changes for the spring and summer. The so-called heart-to-hub trains will return May 23rd. Also that day, the commuter rail will begin running midday trains from Boston to Foxborough. And a new study from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center finds teenagers experiencing homelessness are more likely to face mental health and substance use issues compared to their housed counterparts. A survey found teenagers who are homeless were more likely to use drugs and consider or attempt suicide. Children experiencing homelessness were also far more likely to be male, black, or Hispanic and identify as LGBTQ+. Researchers say the study is a call to action for schools and policymakers to address the burdens that homeless adolescents face. In the forecasts, a nice evening coming up. Clear, breezy overnight tonight, down around the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both highs around 60, then temperatures head upward for the remainder of the week. 55 degrees now in Boston at 607. We are funded
9: by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the book Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Written by Generation Hope founder Nicole Lynn Lewis. Generationhope.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR
11: News.
10: I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrienne Florido. Large wildfires continue to break out across southwestern states. New Mexico is getting hit hardest with seven fires raging. The largest just surpassed 200,000 acres burned.
11: The fires have pushed tens of thousands of people out of their homes, and more evacuations are expected. Barney Torres lives in Cleveland, New Mexico, and told Al Jazeera he is worried.
12: There's some bad winds coming up. Wednesday night, really, really strong. So if they don't contain it by Wednesday, we're going to be in real trouble.
10: The winds have been relentless for weeks now. In Las Vegas, New Mexico, NPR's Eric Westervelt reports that even veteran firefighters are saying conditions are extraordinary.
13: Thousands have been evacuated as fire crews try to contain the fire spreading across drought parched pinion and ponderosa pine forests in what marks another intense and early start to the western fire season. Large parts of the southwest have seen drought for decades. That combined with intense wind called red flag days and warmer temperatures have created nightmarish fire conditions here. Crews have had to battle dangerously strong, gusty winds, sometimes 40 to 70 miles per hour, for days at a time. Bladen Brightrider is a meteorologist on what's known as the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fires.
14: It is pretty extraordinary to have a red flag warning to last for 59 hours as far as my memory goes back is unprecedented.
13: Brightrider says in all, the fire has seen red flag wind warnings in at least 26 of the 34 days since the fire erupted in April. Usually when fire crews see intense red flag days, the wind and temperatures die down at night and relative humidity comes up. But not on the Calf Canyon fire. The wind just never seems to let up. Veteran Wildland Firefighter Dave Bales is the incident commander.
15: Man, I tell you, that's been a huge challenge for us. And and I've been doing this for uh, just around three and a half decades, and I have not seen that many red flag events in a row. Specifically, this last event we just went through was up to five days straight of a red flag day and night. For the tired crews on the ground, Bale says that's meant winds
13: tossing embers and creating new spot fires far beyond their hard
15: fought containment lines in the winds that we were experiencing last couple days yesterday i believe we had reported spotting of up to two miles so you can imagine a two mile spot trying to go on a direct fire edge with a dozer or a hand crew or even a retardant line a two mile spot is going to jump that so that that has been our biggest challenge so far
13: the relentless wind has also been tying the hands of what firefighters here can do Airplanes and helicopters have been grounded most days out of safety concerns, sidelining vital tools in the fire battle. And ground crews have to keep an even closer eye on the blaze as fast wind-driven fire can easily encircle or trap men and women. Clayton Pitts is a lead firefighter on a U.S. Forest Service crew out of San Bernardino, California. He says the increase in wind has meant an increase in risk to firefighters. When you have winds 25, 45, 60 miles an hour it really changes what tactics you can do
16: on the ground now when you have extreme fire behavior your time wedge changes your decision space changes and you need to be able to look out into the future further
13: so that you can get your guys to safety if things rapidly escalate One part of the fire was started when an intentional or prescribed burn got out of hand after winds picked up. Officials are investigating whether there were safety lapses in that intentional blaze meant to clear out heavy fuel left by decades of fire suppression. The fire is spreading through rural forested terrain and affecting mostly small villages and towns. On Sunday near the town of Holman, the fire jumped what was considered an important fire line break, Highway 518. That led to evacuation orders for a few more towns Chris Lopez, the sheriff of San Miguel County, says those who choose not to leave are endangering themselves and first responders. But he understands it isn't an easy decision.
17: It's very difficult for these people, as as some of them, their homes are generational. And so when we go in there to do evacuations, you know, you have to really uh, talk to them. And usually I try and do it very systematic, especially with our ready, set, go process. It helps them to prepare.
13: What's your message to those that want to stick around and stay?
17: Property homes can be replaced, but lives can't.
13: Winds are forecast here to let up a little today and tomorrow, giving firefighters only a small window to try to get a bigger handle on the wildfire. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Las Vegas, New Mexico.
11: French President Emmanuel Macron was elected to a second term at the end of April and sworn in over the weekend. And even though Macron won, the right wing's Marine Le Pen did increase her votes from when the two of them faced off five years ago. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that Le Pen's support is strongest in the parts of France that feel left behind.
18: The Normandy town of Elbeuf is far from the holiday and D-Day beaches that draw thousands of tourists. The city's main draw in the last century were textile factories that earned Elbeuf the title of sheet capital. But those days are long gone. Bonjour. Residents Raymond and Stéphane Bleau both voted for Marine Le Pen. The 68-year-old retiree and his 29-year-old son, who receives disability benefits because he's illiterate, both live in subsidized public housing. They say it's harder to get a spot these days because of Ukrainian refugees.
19: Marine Le Pen thinks of the French first. Of course, it's bad for these poor people in the war, but the French need to come first.
15: Our president
19: is more concerned for Europe than for France. And he has enriched the rich and left the poor like us on the side of the road.
18: The blows described taking part in the Yellow Vest protests a few years ago. The working poor movement from the heartland dogged Macron for much of his term. Christophe Guilloui is author of Twilight of the Elites. He says France today is divided by geography and the blows belong to what he calls peripheral France.
17: On one side are the large globalized cities and on the other, France of the periphery. And for the last 20 years, job and wealth creation has been concentrated in the cities where most ordinary people don't live. And this creates a huge democratic, and cultural malaise.
18: He says France is no longer split along traditional left-right politics.
17: The candidates who made it to the second round this time and in 2017 were instrumental in ending the left-right era. Neither Macron nor Le Pen believes in this divide, and they're the ones getting the most votes today.
18: Macron boasts creating high-tech jobs. He has brought France's unemployment rate down to 7%, the lowest in a decade. His problem? You don't feel that in this corner of Normandy. Neighboring Tourville-la-Rivière has had a communist mayor since 1945, but that didn't stop the town from voting for Le Pen. Resident David Mercier says people believed she would bring back solid factory jobs.
17: The The
18: jobs created nowadays are precarious minimum wage positions for young people, he says. There's no future in such work. People are fed up. Thirty percent of Elbeuf's population lives below the poverty level kids play soccer in a public housing project that stands in jarring contrast to the town's older buildings and churches. There are also many immigrants, old and new. Jamila Judevois parents came to France from Algeria. The unemployed 47-year-old is raising her four kids in the same housing project where she grew up. For me, I think it's better. Le Pen is better, she says. We voted for her because she does what she says. Macron doesn't keep his promises. Jeux Devoir says Macron pushed job training to gain new skills. I don't want training, she says. I just want a job. Majette Saouez is shopping in a budget grocery store in Elbeuf. Boeuf. who wears a hijab, voted for Macron but says she doesn't begrudge those who chose Le Pen, even though Le Pen has advocated banning the Muslim veil in public. Not everyone who votes Le Pen is racist, not at all. I know many,
21: people are just tired of trying to get by with less, whether they're French,
18: immigrants, veil wearers, we're all affected. sa says a vote for Le Pen is a vote of anger against Macron and in support of a candidate who represents the forgotten France. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, El Beauf, Normandy.
10: A new report says the gun homicide rate went up nearly 35 percent during the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, reaching a level not seen in more than a quarter century. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boys reports on who was most hard hit.
22: Deborah Howery used to work as an emergency room doctor, so she knows the reality of gun violence. And the number of times that I tried to resuscitate someone and was
23: unable to save their life. Covered in blood, had to find a clean white coat
22: to comfort a mother was heartbreaking. Knowing these gun deaths were preventable is part of what drew her to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she's now the acting principal deputy director. And the agency's new analysis of gun homicides found a shocking increase. The year 2020 saw nearly 5,000 more people die than the year before. To Howery, here's what stood out.
23: We're losing too many of our nation's children and young people, you know, specifically Black boys
22: and young Black men. The report says gun homicide rates went up across the country, in rural areas and cities, and across all ages. But Howrie says it went up the most among people who were already at a higher risk of gun violence, like Black boys and young men, and people living in the poorest counties, making existing disparities even worse when you look at the pandemic things
23: like job loss economic stressors social isolation these were already
22: hard-hit communities and so this could have impacted them more this cdc analysis also looked at deaths from suicide with guns and found this remained mostly unchanged over this period mike Anestis is executive director of the new jersey gun violence research center at rutgers university
16: someone might look at this and say well the firearm suicide rate stayed largely the same and see that as a good thing. And and I wouldn't deny it's good. It's certainly better than than going up. But that happened in the context of the overall suicide rate going
22: down. He notes that even with the increase in gun homicides, the majority of gun deaths in this country still come from suicide. Nell Greenfield, (laughs) Boyce, NPR News.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A mixed showing for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow slipped about a quarter of a percent, 85 points. It closed at 32,161. S&P gained a quarter of a percent to end the day at 40.01. The Nasdaq rose a full percent to finish at 11,738. Details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619.
19: We're funded by you our listeners and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont where the Love Spring event is underway featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek citysidesubaru.com
0: Shares in a Cambridge-based software maker fell more than 20% in trading today, following a verdict in a trade secrets case. Today, a jury ordered Pegasystems to pay $2 billion to a rival software company, Appian. The jury found Pegasystems stole trade secrets from Appian. Pegasystems says the verdict was not supported by the facts or the law, and it plans to appeal. Forecast is coming up. We're
19: funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com and Gene Brooks Landscapes, dedicated to designing, constructing, and maintaining imaginative gardens for 32 years in Greater Boston. Photos at GeneBrooksLandscapes.com.
0: After a nice day, should have a beautiful evening, followed by a clear, breezy night tonight. Temperatures down around the low to mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine, a few clouds around as well. Should be dry and breezy once again. Highs about 60 degrees. Milder weather moves in after that. Thursday could reach 70, a little bit higher on Friday, maybe a little bit higher on Saturday as well. 55 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido,
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. The big infrastructure bill that President Biden signed in November offers states $7.5 billion to build and improve charging stations for electric cars. But that might not move the needle much in Wyoming, where distances between towns are vast and the population is low. Taylor Stagner with Wyoming Public Media reports.
24: A rusty blue Ford Bronco pulls into a gas station and tire shop in central Wyoming. One of several Mike Bailey's family has owned since the 60s. Bailey could apply for federal funding to add electric car chargers, but he's not sure he will.
25: Sometimes those technologies work out and sometimes they don't. So, you know, we'll see.
24: The bill is sending Wyoming $25 million to install electric car chargers, but unlike some other states, its Department of Transportation isn't planning to do that work itself. It's leaving it up to private industry to apply for the money and do the work. Wyoming's economy has been based on fossil fuels for more than a century, and many people here would like it to stay that way. And Bailey says the federal grants don't cover the full cost.
25: You can spend a half a million dollars pretty easy on that. So even if they pay for 80% of that, that's still a hundred thousand dollars that you've got to show that you could make that return on your investment over time.
24: Adam Davis is a researcher at the University of California, Davis. He says Wyoming is already way behind the rest of the country when it comes to publicly available electric vehicle chargers.
16: Wyoming is probably somewhere on the lines of like One tenth as far along as California, which is the fastest state in the country, and something like a third to half as far along as the rest of the country, the sort of national average.
24: A big reason is that Wyoming has the lowest population of any U.S. state with fewer than 600,000 people. Since many rely on the energy industry for their paychecks, people here can be hostile to alternative energy. The Wyoming Department of Transportation says that there are only 500 electric vehicles in the whole state.
16: You need chargers to support electric vehicles. But if you don't have electric vehicles, then the chargers don't make sense. And getting those things balanced is really, really, really tricky.
24: But there's at least one guy in Wyoming who's determined to get more electric cars on the road, Patrick Lawson. He says he's been into electric cars since way before the first Tesla rolled out.
26: When I was really little, like six years old, I put together a little car out of two solar panels and electric motors and made it so that I could um, make it change directions by putting my hand over it.
24: Lawson, who's Northern Arapaho, works for his tribe's internet company. His side hustle is Wild West EV, a business he started that's installing chargers in central Wyoming. He lives in Riverton and sees progress in electric car adoption.
26: And I've found quite a few people in town, actually, have got them now over the years. So there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us or so, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it went from one to two to four to eight. And, and if you look at the numbers nationally, the EVs have almost doubled in sales every year for the past 10 years.
24: Lawson started his business in 2016. So far, he's helped businesses set up chargers in five Wyoming towns. He's working on applications for the federal funding to help set up more and expects to start submitting them this summer. For NPR News, I'm Taylor Stagner in Riverton, Wyoming.
10: Pistoia, Italy, is a lovely medieval Tuscan town. And if you'd been there last weekend, you could have caught a circus performing Alice in Wonderland. There were a lot of emotions on stage and behind the curtains, because as Adam Rainey found out, the troops' circumstances changed drastically on February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine.
27: Alice goes down the rabbit hole and takes us with her, while trapeze artists and acrobats perform gravity-defying acts. The Red Queen and White Queen fight for sartorial dominance with outfits that would look appropriate at a Lady Gaga show. This isn't your typical Alice in Wonderland. It's a vibrant display with bright costumes and incredible aerial acrobatics taking place on a stage illuminated by a high tech multimedia show. And the troupe, Theatre Circus Elysium is Ukrainian. Perhaps even more than Alice, its performers are struggling to make sense of a world that has been turned upside down. They had only been in Italy a little more than two weeks when everything changed for them
28: up on 24th of uh, February, we see uh, the war start. It was shock for us.
27: That's Julia Malezik, an acrobat and gymnast in the troop.
28: It was so difficult because uh, all our um, heart was with our family, but we must go into stage and smile.
27: Fear for their families back home and uncertainty about what lay ahead for them. After the first few days, their Italian producer, Roberto Romaniello, realized they had to take
29: action.
18: The
29: problem wasn't how to return, whether by land or plane. The problem was they couldn't go home, and actually, we had to bring their families
27: here. Romaniello got their visas extended and buy-in from venues across the country. The show could go on. That's the sound of children playing dodgeball backstage right before the curtain came up. 10 children in all, along with several other family members, were able to come to Italy. Even a grandmother, pets too, six dogs and a cat.
30: If we have a job here, uh, we also can give support to people who stay in Ukraine.
27: That's the troops executive director, Alexander Sakharov.
30: But if I come to Ukraine, nothing. Because I'm not a warrior, I'm not a soldier, you know. I can do it, but it's not will be to effect.
27: While men in the show struggled with the decision to stay or go men of military age back home couldn't join their families in Italy by law they have to stay in Ukraine one of those was Yulia Palidas husband Palita plays Alice
28: Yeah you feel guilty you you fight with this feeling that you are safe it's unfair you know that you can be safe
27: the 25-year-old dancer came late to the tour. She spent the first hours of the war in a bunker in Kiev with her husband. There in the bomb shelter, they applied for visas to go to the United Kingdom. The day she landed in Italy, she heard they both had been issued UK visas, but for now, her husband isn't allowed to join her. She was torn about what to do.
28: I, I tell him maybe I will come home for, uh, for a week. I don't know, no, no, you cannot, you don't need it, we okay, so you go. Yeah. You go because this, this is the opportunity you're waiting for your, uh, for your life.
27: <laughs> Back on stage, a battle royale between the Red Queen and the White Queen. The two children who played dodgeball are now watching the final trapeze act from behind the curtain. As the performers take a bow to rapturous applause, they unfurl a Ukrainian flag. The children are on stage too, taking a bow with the troupe. Ring performer Oloxana Špilový says it's hard to keep it together that moment every night on stage.
6: Applause for us, it's really really real like <laughs> emotion, feeling, uh, like we want to cry and, th- and uh, want to say um, thankful for your support.
27: Support that looks likely to continue for the foreseeable future. The troop will be back on the road soon, traveling across Italy. If you happen to be in Palermo on June 3rd, the circus will be in town. For NPR News, I'm Adam Rainey in Pistoia, Italy.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Bruins resume their first-round playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes tonight in Raleigh. Whoever wins tonight will take a three-games-to-two lead, and the first team to win four games will advance to the next round. The puck drops at seven. It'll be a 7.20 start time in Atlanta tonight as the Red Sox and Braves start up a two-game series. Garrett Whitlock pitches for Boston against Kyle Wright. This is WBUR at 6.30, and Marketplace is next.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civicleadership and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs starting May 6th, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app.